40 here, so I've often talked about how much I enjoy the center-left podcast, Decoding the Gurus. And uh, today I thought I'd spend a little bit time decoding Decoding the Gurus because I was listening to their latest episode with guest Robert Wright and I think, hey, there are some important things that I want to analyze here. So what, what makes Decoding the Gurus so good is that they analyze the facts and the logic behind various secular gurus' contentions. But uh, first of all, let's go to Donnie Pauling. We're back with, with Donnie, who is our guest on uh, Friday. So, Donnie, we were just talking via email before the show. What is life like as a registered sex offender in California and as you travel throughout the country? Well, um, when I was in California, uh, right after getting out of, of prison, um, I, I thought that life was sucky. And then I moved to Arkansas for a short period of time and uh, realized that uh, in California, the sucky life there was actually pretty good in comparison. Um, so what is it like? Um, actually pretty good, pretty horrible, actually. <laughs> Just about everywhere uh, across the country. Um, it's, you know, sex offenders are a group of people who it's okay to hate and discriminate against and treat really poorly. Um, and, you know, I've had um, jobs that were given to me, people that really like the work that I'm doing. And then they find out about that, you know, because um, eventually it'll come up and then all of a sudden they want nothing to do with you and they let you go. And um, so, so basically, you know, I believe that, you know, if someone's going to be rehabilitated, um, they really need to be able to support themselves and have a decent job. But our uh, our country, the way that it is currently, still allows people to get away with uh, letting that be a reason not to hire. Um, now, it might be, I don't know, maybe it was justified in some cases. But um, I, I do think that, uh, you know, the government should give more incentives to employers to give uh, people a chance who are on the registry because not every case is the same. You know, there's definitely going to be some where you where it's justified to keep that person isolated and away from everyone else. But um, there are other cases where, you know, this the person who is on that registry might have done something that's even less serious than a, you know, a, a person who's been in a DUI accident that killed someone, you know, we don't put those people on a registry. You don't, you don't get on a, a website and look at your neighborhood and see that the lady two doors down, you know, has a DUI conviction that might put your kids in jeopardy every time she rolls her car out of the driveway. But we put a big target on the back of every, you know, sex offender in the entire country. Um, and like I say, I think that in some cases that might be justified, but not to blanketly apply that to everyone on the registry. I don't think that that's okay. And there are states. People want to know what the crime was, and so the crime was sexual sexual relations with some a girl who was sixteen. Right. Yeah, that was that was uh, the reason that I was sent uh, away. Well, I made the 
steal myself. I pled no contest pursuant to People v. West because the People v. West is a des designation that says that the uh, charges to which I'm pleading aren't uh, factually correct, but I'm taking the deal to um, to end the case. And I did that mostly because I didn't want to go to uh, court and fight it and make the person um, who had brought the uh, accusations against me make her have to go through the uh, the trial, you know, a trial. Uh, she'd already been traumatized enough by everything that had happened up to then. Um, honestly, the uh, the legal proceedings and the involvement with law enforcement after she initially went to police was more traumatizing for everyone than anything else had ever been up to that case, after that point. So if you had to do everything over with, with this girl and her family, how would you have handled it differently in retrospect? <laughs> well, <laughs> after everything that's happened, I would have just never... <laughs> never gotten to know anybody at all but had i you know had they been in my life i definitely would have kept up better boundaries you know i like i'd said before on the last show i never i wasn't seeking out an age group it i just got to know this person and really cared a lot about her and chose not to consider her age you know chose to ignore it um, and became inappropriate with her, not anywhere close to the extent that was written about. You know, that's one of the things that I've known. Um, I'll give an example. There's a person up in Redding, California right now um, who was just found guilty of having an inappropriate relationship with a student. He is... Um, he was an assistant wrestling coach, and the girl was 17. And that was the only person. But the way that the media writes it, even to this day, even after the conviction, it makes it sound like there were multiple victims. There's not. I've talked to the family of the one who, um, for whom he was convicted, and, you know, and even... The sister of the girl in question says, no, my sister was the only one that he had a relationship with. But they put it in the paper, making it look like there's multiple, because that's just what the media does. It's a more sensational story. And sure, law enforcement is going to go and investigate to make sure that there's no more students that he's had a relationship with. But the way that law enforcement puts it out to the media and the way they write about it, they never let the public know that, hey, you know, we didn't, we didn't find any evidence of anybody else being involved, you know, just this one person. That's not a good story. You know, the same thing happened with me when I, am uh, you know, was incarcerated in the jail uh, on pretrial. They, they sit there and they say, oh, yeah, we're looking for, you know, law enforcement's looking into eight possible victims. Well, the reason they say that is because I gave them the list of eight of her friends who had been over to my house. You know, I was trying to be very open and show, hey, you know, this is, I'm, I'm going to take responsibility for my actions, and I would prefer, you know, if you guys, you know, would give me the benefit of the doubt and, and go and ask first before you make accusations. But that's not what they did. They said, 
know, we're looking for eight possible victims. And then, you know, nothing ever comes of that, but they don't, you know, reprint a story or a retraction that says, you know, yeah, we talked to these people and, and you know, nothing, nothing happened. They just leave that out there because it's sensationalism and, and, and people like a good story. Okay, you know, let, for, let me let me jump in. Did you ever see the TV series Sopranos? The Sopranos. I have, yeah. Okay. Did you remember the scene where Tony Soprano's wife is in therapy, and the the therapist tells her you need to leave your husband and have absolutely nothing nothing to do with him? And she says, "Okay, so you're telling him that I need to put up better boundaries." Right, you just talked about putting up better boundaries. He said, right. no, I'm not talking about putting up better boundaries. I'm not going to charge you for this consultation. I'm telling you that you need to leave him. And so when you say put up better boundaries, I'm thinking uh, uh, a, a stronger and to me more sane response is to say that you should never be alone with uh, with attractive underage uh, or teenage girls that uh, you oh, should yeah. never put yourself in a situation where that happens and you sh certainly shouldn't be living with, with any. Right. So, yeah. So for me, um, I would agree with you. Um, you know, you, you're talking about in retrospect. So when you said that, what I'm thinking is if I was in the same situation again, how should I have responded to it? So if I was in the same situation where she and her family were living with me, I should have put up better boundaries. But, you know, like I said right before that, um, you know, I said I would never want to know them to begin with. <laughs> um, so it's kind of we're kind of saying the same thing. I'm just saying that had I been in that space where, yes, they are living with me and she is, you know, saying she wants to marry me someday and she's running around my house with very little or nothing on all the time, I should never have allowed myself to um, cross any lines. But see, the thing was, is that I spent, if I wasn't out traveling and speaking, I worked from home. And um, she was being, she was in a homeschool program where she did the majority of her education at home and then would go into class just for math and English, you know, two days a week. So I'm around her all the time, and it didn't start off where, you know, all of a sudden I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, have this relationship with this 16-year-old. It was something that gradually happened. You know, I'm talking to her all the time, and, and she's sharing everything on her mind with me, or we're, we're around each other 24-7 when I'm not off speaking somewhere, and I became very attached to her. So, yeah, I would, uh, you know, going back, if I was in that same situation where she lived in my house, I would, you know, have asked her dad to move in, which was the original plan. But he never did. He never moved into the house with us. And I, you know, I would have insisted that, hey, you know, you need to be here once because what had happened is um, the mother was originally in the house. She left, you know, she went off and did her own thing and just left her two daughters at my house. Because they were, you know, already enrolled in school, and and um, one of them was uh, uh, right about to graduate, and then the one, you know, the 16-year-old, she had a couple more years to uh, uh, to go before she finished all her educational goals, which included going to college and becoming a psychologist. 
and you know, and that, and when she left, their dad was supposed to move in, but he just never did. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, even if the dad was there, the, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be living with teenage girls. I mean, that even if the dad's there, the mother's there, the uncle's there, it just seems like for for most heterosexual men. They they should not be living with teenage girls who are their biological daughters or at least stepchildren, perhaps. Right. Well, and that's why I say, it. ideally, the situation would be to never know them to begin with. So, you know, when you asked what would I do different, I was just, you know, in my mind saying, if I was in the exact situation again, if they were living with me. But yeah, yeah, ideally is to never, and I don't do that now. I don't go around and associate with anybody who has um, uh, teenage daughters. You know, I don't make any kind of relationships. That's not a restriction. You know, the judge said at uh, my sentencing that she wished she could impose that restriction on me, but the situation and the case facts don't allow her to do so. Well, I've done that on my own. You know, I... What the judge doesn't realize is that I do think about what people say and I ponder it. And so when she said she wished she could give me that restriction, but the case facts don't allow her to impose it, I thought a lot about it and I said, well, I'm going to impose it on myself. And so that's what I've done. You know, um, I have dated since being out. I've had two um, long-term relationships and one of the people was older than me and uh, one of the women, and then the other one wasn't. She was uh, uh, younger than me, but nowhere near a teenager, uh, you know. So I, uh, I just uh, died. That's not something I put myself in that situation anymore, and I won't again. Didn't you have anyone tell you that you were in a crazy situation? Yeah, I did. Um, Craig Gross from Triple X Church. He said, you know, you probably should get yourself out of this situation. And I said, all right, I'm open to that. Um, you going to help me do it? Where are they going to go? <laughs> I said, you you show me where they're going to go, and uh, and I'll send them there. <laughs> and um, you know that's it was just uh, a situation where just kind of ran out on them, and the dad wouldn't take him into their house, and there was nowhere else for them to go. But I had, you know, he wasn't the only one that made comments. He's just the one that I talked to most about it, you know, because I was traveling and speaking for them at the time. Um, and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to get them out of my house. I'm not just going to turn them out to the streets, though, so give me a solution. Uh, but, and, I mean, that sounds like you wanted uh, someone else to take care of this, this problem rather than you stepping up. No, I, well, the way in my mind stepping up was me taking care of them. You know, I was. How am I supposed to find them a place to go I, when their own mom and dad aren't aren't uh, stepping up for that? You know, sure. I mean, if I if I thought of a good solution, I mean, it's easy to sit here and talk about sending them somewhere else. But at the time, there was nowhere that I could think of to send them. But most people would not have gotten themselves into your situation. Most men in your position, whether right. the pastors uh -huh. or normal men would not have gotten themselves into your position. So the, the point is not to beat, beat down on Donnie. The point is to understand and extrapolate from your circumstances so that we can have more clarity mm -hmm. for, for everyone who. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't. So it, it's not just the things. 
that, that here I want to continue this point. So the, the point is to understand the situation, to learn from the situation, and to understand why, if if you're willing to go there, why you were so vulnerable as to get into this situation because a normal man would not allow would not have allowed himself to get into this situation. Like a normal man understands it's it's a right. bad idea to be living with with teenage girls, and they wouldn't have right. been depending upon someone else to solve the situation. They would not have allowed themselves to get into that situation. It's like I was walking down the street the other day, and there was an above average attractive young woman who was just passed out. Um, on the on the side of the road. I mean, off the road. She was passed out behind a a Wendy's, and so she was a a homeless woman. But she was still above average in look. She was she was young. I mean, she placed herself in an incredibly vulnerable position. So I, I was curious, like, what happened that this attractive young woman, you know, has ended up in this vulnerable position? So, one, I'm interested in how you ended up in such a stupid position. For, forget you know, anything that you may yeah, have done yeah. with a girl. Like, what was it about you that led you to be in such a ridiculous position? Because no well, normal man... Well, I, I had would... too much confidence in my own abilities. You know, I had... Yeah. Uh, so so it started off where their grandmother, who also they weren't allowed to live with, um, had asked me to step into their lives. So that at the very beginning, they weren't in my house. Their grandmother asked, hey, these two are on a bad path. Um, I think that you can speak into their lives and, and get them out of it. So, you know, of course, that stroked my ego. Oh, of course I can. I could go and help them. So I go and I talk to them and I help them with their schoolwork and, uh, you know, took them a few places, you know, and gave them rides to school every now and then. And, and you know, I was seeing their grades improve and it felt good. So in, in the, they were living with their mother at the time and she she changed boyfriends quite often. Um, you know, literally every few weeks it seemed like, and I and I saw you know they don't have all that much hope. Well, the mother and and her boyfriend at the time that the very you know that she had, they broke up and she asked if she could move in. So I said yes. Now I said I should have said no yet there, but I was confident that you know this isn't going to be an issue. <laughs> this isn't going to handle. So they move in, you know, and they're. They're, they're all there, they're all three, the mom and the two daughters, for for many, many months before mom takes off, you know, to a place four hours away and just leaves them there. So, yeah, it, it was overconfidence in my, you know, because at the time, like, you know, if you remember, I was traveling and speaking and people saw me as a leader in, in certain arenas and... I felt like I was. I thought that uh, I could handle it, that I could make a difference in people's lives. And then when mom takes off and just leaves them there, I thought, oh, yeah, I could still handle this. But um, as time went on and I realized I couldn't, as I mentioned in the last show, I asked a couple of friends for help and accountability. You know, one of them was the girl's own adopted father, and another one was a principal for a, a school in the city where I was living and you know and then Craig with him I was like yeah I'm perfectly willing to get out of this situation what do you suggest because I don't know where to send them you know and I definitely didn't want to get social services involved because in my mind that would uh, negatively impact them to be stuck into some sort of a group home or something 
Okay, let, let's jump in here. So my understanding of life is that when we have a problem in, in one area of life, we, we probably have had the problem many times before. And it's just that yeah. this particular situation is making the problem so dramatic that we, we can't ignore it. So I, I'm wondering, is is Captain Saverho, <laughs> is that... <laughs> Did, did that exhibit itself for I've, you elsewhere I've in your life? Always, I've always been a person that thinks he could save others, yes. And it's not necessarily just women, but I think I, I've always been a person who feels like I could save everybody. Yeah. And um, so, uh, and also these girls, you know, in reality, if you think about it, you know, I'm speaking. Well, why am I speaking? Because I'm a former porn producer who left the industry and became a Christian. Well, who was I working with in the industry? Well, women from the ages of 18 to as old as I could find them. But who, where was the uh, the money the most lucrative? Well, in the in the 18 to 24 year old category. So 18, and um, you know this girl being 16 and her sister being 17. The difference between those categories is not really all that much. Um, and so I for 10 years had been working with 18 to 24 year olds, you know, and then up. But my point is, is that, you know, people that are very similar in age had been people that I'd been working with for over 10 years already. And it seemed, you know, rather similar. But in this case, I was thinking, well, I'm hoping that I could keep these girls from ever ending up in adult films on turning their lives around. You know, I'm sitting there giving myself way too much, uh, way too much to handle, you know, thinking I could. Um, and also, you know, I told myself, well, you know, I'm for all those years when I was an adult, you know, I was around women all the time that were similar in age and, you know, and, and uh, I could keep it professional when I needed to then. So why should it not be the same now? And especially now that I have uh, this position as a religious leader, um, I just thought I could handle it, and I, I was wrong. Yeah. Now, how had the Captain Saverho mentality demonstrated itself before you became a pastor, such as when you were a pornographer? I, I suspect there's still a part of you that wanted to go around and, and save these hosts. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you ever saw my websites back then, the ones that I owned, but. Um, as, as deluded as this might sound now to some, um, you know, I, on my personal websites, I would I would give work to anyone who wanted to be involved. So even if they didn't fit the standard for the other clients I shot content for, you know, if they're too ugly, too fat, too this, too that, I would still give them work. Now, you know, after I got out of the industry, I thought, you know, I wasn't doing them any favors, but at the time I thought I did, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, and, and did I mean, you I, find yourself getting caught up in in the girls, you know, disastrous lives? I mean, let's say you shot them a few times and then they started having yeah. problems. Did you find yourself getting caught up in that? Yeah, yes. You know, certain ones, not not a huge amount, but, you know, I take on certain ones. And, and you know, one of them, the one that I told you about before that ended up uh, killing herself in a park in uh, Northern California, she, for example, was one where 
her life was horrible and I tried I thought I could help her too I we created a website that was just of her it was popular but but she also you know lived with us for a while um for a time she even dated my brother and um, she was one of those that I thought I could save <laughs> back then but I ended up making her life worse you know I had good intentions but launching that website of her made her life much worse now, what, uh, maybe, what about before the porn industry? Did your Captain save mentality come out? Perhaps were, were there other disastrous not, not attempts really to then save because, people when you're be, no. before the, the porn industry? Well, you never tried to you save know, I was in I was in my mid-20s when I started shooting porn and was married um, at the time. So, no, you know, I'd, up until then, I'd, I'd gone to school, gone to college, gotten married, and... Um, you know, my wife was my focus. I loved my wife very much. Um, so it was just us and, you know, the beginnings of our family. So, no, I hadn't really been the type. That, well, I, I still probably had that as part of my personality, but there was just never really a time when it came out before because I was married. <laughs> you yeah, know, but, it, I mean, were you, did you try to help some homeless Dude, I mean, were you I always to help? gave money to homeless people, right? You but know, did I you always... get in? Did you get into any disastrous? Um, no, because my wife. No, my wife was my sole focus, and and she definitely uh, <laughs> curtailed anything. You know, from it was not even a thought in my mind. I already knew my wife is like not going to go for us helping anybody like that you know giving here and there but you know she wanted to focus on starting our family so yeah it started after i was an adult what about in high school did you try to save girls in high school i didn't no back then i was just a, a nerdy dude getting good grades and studying a lot and remaining a virgin until marriage was the idea didn't quite make it but it was the idea um you know, and trying to be the person that my parents had told me I was supposed to be, you know, in the, in the religious faith I was brought up in. So in, in 2007, I, I met a girl at the at a Los Angeles Press Club event, and she was living on her sister's couch at the time. And so it was kind of intoxicating to take her in, essentially move her in with me and, you know, give her a better life and she was happy to just go along pretty much with anything I wanted to do and I was intoxicated for the first two or three months at kind of rescuing this girl and so yeah. when I was writing on the porn industry there were times when I'd go pick up you know porn people from from the hospital to give them a ride home and stuff like that and again it was another intoxicating thing or there were porn girls that I knew who became suicidal who would come to see me and I didn't even try to have sex with them. <laughs> I would just right. uh, talk to them. And so I know the intoxicating element of uh, rescuing people. It's, it's absolutely a, a rush. It, it makes you feel, yeah. makes you feel big. It makes you feel heroic. Uh, talk to me oh, about right. the, talk to me about the, the intoxicating rush of rescuing. Well, that's definitely for sure. Like, you know, these two um, teens, when they entered my life, they, I wanted to let them be, 
spoiled in a way that they'd never experienced. You know, I wanted to let them see that their life could be really good, and I was making a good income. And I, I spent eight hundred dollars a month just on clothes for the two of them. You know, I'd I'd uh, give them, and every single time I returned from a speaking engagement, um, see the the money that that was given to me for speaking was significant. But I also had a digital marketing business where I did digital marketing for car dealers. So I donated all of the speaking money to uh, single mothers. But first, I would also give to these two um, teenagers. You know, I would. They knew that every time I returned, we're going to go shopping and get a full outfit of whatever you want. You know, whatever store they want to go to, and you know they. The jeans that they liked were, you know, over $100 each. And they just knew every time Donnie goes out for a speaking engagement, when he comes back, he's going to use part of that money to take us shopping. And then I'm going to donate, you know, the rest of it to other people that I uh, was helping out. And I just, I just felt like I was changing people's lives for sure. I think that we give ourselves more credit than you know, for the change than is what actually happening in retrospect. But at the time, it feels like, oh, yeah, this person's life's going to be completely different because I'm in it. So, yeah, it is a rush because you feel like a hero. <laughs> you feel like a savior of sorts. And and let's let's keep going going even deeper. The reason it's such a rush is that it meets a need, a desperate, desperate need. And so... What's a the need best? to be needed. It's the need to be needed, but beneath that, we go even deeper than that, is a need to feel that you are a person person who is worthy of being loved. It's it's a way of oh, repairing your own brokenness. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and I still, I've never since uh, my wife and I split up, really felt that I deserve to be loved, because when I split up with her. You know, due to my involvement in adults, and um, she, her life was ruined by it. Well, I can't say ruined because she's a strong person and she arose, but her life was definitely negatively impacted, and so is the life of my son. You know, and so ever since then, to this day, um, don't really feel like I deserve to be loved. And you're exactly right. And trying to help people during that time because like you know like we just said my helping people and thinking i rescued them began when i was an adult i was an adult dating someone for six years we were engaged for four of those years i could never walk the aisle with her because i didn't feel like i deserved it and i felt like i'd be cheating on my son you know to start a family with someone else and that's when i started you know choosing these pet causes even back then you know, they were you know born girls you had a rough life at first and then after i got out of it then it was these two you know and so um yeah you're right it, it's all about that it makes you feel like you're a better person and then when what happened you know all the stuff that happened with the 16 year old happened then all of all of that false feelings you come crashing down and you think yeah i'm i'm a piece of shit 
<laughs> basically. Yeah. You know, and uh, because, you know, I'm trying to tell people I own what I did. I'm not trying to excuse it. So when I, when I talk about, well, here's how I was thinking, I'm not trying to justify it. I can, I can take myself outside of my own bubble and, and look at the situation from the perspective of other people. I'm just saying, no, this is what happened, and this is how I felt at the time, and I didn't feel like I was, you know, some asshole who's, you know, preying on a 16-year-old girl. I felt like I was a person who was saving her life, and I honestly, you know, as I got closer and closer to her, and, you know, her sister's included in this too, but nothing inappropriate happened with her sister. But in these girls' lives, I felt like, there was no one who could help them more. And when she kept, when the 16-year-old kept saying she was going to marry me someday, and then her dad said he'd be proud to call me his son-in-law someday, I started thinking, yeah, I mean, who who could possibly be better for her for the rest of her life than me? You know, so, and, and that's just honestly how I felt. Like, who would treat her better? Who would love her more? Who would try to give her the best life she could have? Um, Okay, let me jump in. So if you didn't feel much of the time like a piece of crap, you you never would have gotten into the porn industry in the first place. Uh, the, The biggest problem with feeling like a piece of crap is that you will primarily associate with other people who feel like a piece of crap because someone who is normal and healthy is not going to hang around for very long with someone who feels like a piece of crap because people pick this up. It's kind of a stench when, when one feels like, you know, one is a piece of crap, you know, people kind of get, get that signal and then normal, healthy people start to distance. Do you, do you want to share there any may thoughts be, on this? That, 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 uh, that happens sometimes, but also there's a, you know, a bit of narcissism in some cases where the people who feel like a piece of crap hide that behind this other person who's you you know quite narcissistic and comes across as thinking that they're confident so i mean i was all of my life from the time i was young i excelled in academics and when i was very young my dad used to tell me that i was the smartest person he'd ever met and i believed that to be true right up until I was speaking on a stage and sharing that story, you know, after I was out of the adult industry and speaking at at churches and universities. And uh, in the middle of a speech, I realized I could not possibly have been the smartest person my dad had ever known when I'm only in third grade when, when he was telling me this. But see, all of my life I had believed that, that I was special, that I, you know, was more intelligent than anybody else. And, um, you know, the feeling like a piece of crap didn't really start until after I had left my wife. Well, she divorced me when I I told her about my involvement in uh, porn production. The reason that I let myself get involved in that was because um, I, I saw it as a shortcut to becoming wealthy. Um, I always thought that with my intelligence that I felt I I am going to someday be wealthy. So when porn came along, what had happened is 
I saw an article on MSNBC about the people who own the AT Kingdom, Kingdom Worldwide Web Operations Incorporated. They own uh, AT Kingdom and um, you know several websites. Um, and uh, there was a write-up about them, how they were a couple just working from their very nice home and making millions of dollars. So I looked into their website, and I would heard of it before because I'd seen the images from their website in news groups. And back then, it was easy to go to Network Solutions and find an email address for the website owner. So I emailed the uh, owner, Kim Nielsen, and I asked him, where do you get your photos? <laughs> and he says, from photographers all over the country and around the world. He goes, why? Do you want to submit? And I said, yeah, I absolutely do. So um, especially after he told me what he paid and, you know, he was spending $2 million a year on, on just photo content because video wasn't really all that popular at the time. There wasn't the bandwidth for it yet. And so I went, you know, right to my wife and I told her, man, we could really, you know, make a lot of money shooting for these websites on the internet. And of course she flipped out and said, absolutely not. But I did it behind her back. And, you know, I started a fake company and she thought I was doing um, technology consulting, but I was producing for Kim Nielsen and ATK. And from there I went to a company called EENT who had corrupts, corrupts hometown amateurs, corrupts private clubs, collection and from there you know when people found out that i could produce for those two then other places started purchasing from me and and so i didn't get into adult because um, i felt like a piece of shit at the time i began feeling like getting into adults i got into adults because i saw it as a way to get rich a lot faster than my present plan. Yeah, but you people know, which, don't people don't stay an adult who who are, are normal. I mean, the type of women who get into the the porn industry, they're broken people. The there was one. Well, yeah, you, let me finish my point. Sure. There was one outstanding characteristic of everybody I knew in the porn industry, whether they were behind the scenes or in front of the camera. That is, they all had limited ties with other people. Like if you have strong family ties, there's no way that you can humiliate your family by participating in the pornography industry. And if you have strong ties to an ethnic right. community, to a church or to a synagogue, to a profession, to any kind of community, there's no way that you can humiliate your community by participating in the pornography industry. And so what type well, of people, let me finish my point. What type yeah. of people have weak ties with other people, people who feel like crap? So I, I still yeah. still now, contend that, that someone who's that. who's got normal normal ability to bond with other people is not going to want to bring that degree of humiliation on others, and so there has to be more than one screw loose to do what you did. And I'm not blaming you. So it's, it's, it's uh, just uh, I, I think it's just a fact. That. So I can see why you'd say that, but I'll tell you why I think you're absolutely wrong. <laughs> You are insulated to the adult uh, industry in the San Fernando Valley. Well, it was different up in Chico, California. Um, so, um, and I've, I've had this discussion before, that's why, and I've thought about it quite a bit, that's why I think that you're wrong. But also you have confirmation bias because you live in a place where people come there for the specific reasons of getting involved in adults. 
I was doing things differently in Chico. I was recruiting girls who came to Chico State to go to school. And they came from decent families oftentimes, as I mentioned before. Some of them were virgins. So um, they would come to my house. And after my wife and I divorced, I, I started dating somebody. We had a nice house. We would interview them. And they would see this as a way of making money a lot faster and a lot more than going to work at like Starbucks or a coffee shop. So it worked for us because they came to a house that was in a nice neighborhood around people who treated them well and acted like they were their friends. And they didn't think that their family back home, who they did care about and did not want to shame, would ever find out because the internet was kind of new back then. And, it's, you know, in L.A., you guys heard a lot about it because you were the leaders of this adult online revolution, if you want to call it that. But up in Chico, California, where there's only 30,000, 40,000 people in population at the time, and parents are sending their kids to go to college, that wasn't the case. When I told people I was going to shoot them for ATK, they have no idea who the heck ATK is. You know, the Kim... Nielsen had 20,000 members of his websites, but that's 20,000 members worldwide. That's a, hardly anyone has heard of it. He's making plenty of money charging each member $30 a month, you know, for each of his multiple sites, you know, and he'd get people um, joining many different sites. So he was making millions of dollars, but people in Chico, California don't even know that ATK exists. So these girls are normal girls who have strong family ties and just don't think their family's going to find out. College is like that. People are rebellious, and I would tell them, isn't it true? Old religious men make up all of these rules that say that you can't do this, you know, because that I knew that was going to be one of the concerns of these girls. Their family often is going to have strong religious ties. So I would say, why can't you make money? Who's getting, who's getting manipulated here? You're coming here to Chico State, fine. Go work at a coffee shop. Bring home a couple hundred dollars every two weeks after taxes because you can only work limited hours. Or come here and work for me and I'll pay you 500 a day. And your family's probably never going to see it because it's in the member section of a website you've never heard of and they probably haven't either. So yeah, in LA, yeah, I can see why you'd think that way, but Northern California, it wasn't like that. I, was, I didn't want those broken people. I wanted to, and that's why my content became popular with my clients. I wasn't a very good photographer at first. They had to send people from LA up to train me because I was trying to teach myself. Yeah, but, and so that's what the appeal was, is the girls that I was sending to them were not broken. They became broken by the industry. That's one of the reasons I ended up having to leave is because my conscience just bothered me so much that we were breaking these people who never involved in an industry like this if they hadn't run into me. No, so yeah, I can understand what you'd say what you're saying, but I completely disagree because we're not in that bubble of, of lawlessness. Okay, let, let, me, let me jump in. Become yeah. More broken. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're telling me that you were dealing with normal girls with good family relationships, including a good relationship with their father. I just don't... I just don't believe that any woman who has a good relationship with a father is going to want to participate in the sex industry. But you're telling me that many of the girls that you work with have had good relations with their fathers. Yeah, they did. In fact, that's one of the things that, one, you know, I gave an example when I would speak this one girl 
like that this content off the internet being broken in relation to that. She was always a daddy's girl. And she came out of I mean, he came out of his office one day and someone in his car with photos of his daughter, you know, from these websites that I'd sought her for. And he had no idea. And it humiliated him and broke his heart and it damaged their relationship. You know, because I didn't start them off in hardcore. I didn't need to for ATK. That was all solo website and it was photos only but they would eventually get to the place where and we kind of actually evolved together myself and the models because I started with ATK doing all solo stuff photos only and then as the um, bandwidth evolved and and the and the industry evolved people started having to do more to um, to keep on making money and so these girls would They'd gotten used to making this money, so they'd start doing more too. And all of us would try to make each other feel better about what we were doing, but it would end up breaking people, including me. That's why I had mentioned before, you know, that my first year at Internext, I'm sitting here, um, I'm sitting here seeing that I have never been exposed to, and I think it's disgusting. But by the end of my career. It's just so we be broken, myself included, involved. Okay, let me right, talk about the, 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 the uh, hang on. Let me talk about the, the flip side of the desire to rescue. It, it always comes, I, I think, with the simultaneous desire to be rescued. So when you are rescuing girls, they're also rescuing you. And so I don't think people have the desire to rescue without the simultaneous desire to, to be rescued. Were you in touch or were you aware of your desire to be rescued through rescuing others? Um, I wasn't aware of it, but um, in retrospect, I think you're exactly right. Because my desire to be rescued began and more aware of really how badly I had screwed up by destroying my family to become involved in this business. You know, my wife was a virgin when we got married. I didn't make it. I went on a time when we were broken. This person found out I was a virgin. She decided to be a great Christian girl who had lived her faith. I had a son with her at the time. Sorry, I'm parking. I had mentioned to you that I was going to yep. have to stop in a, a certain time, but I could still talk. Um, but my co-driver is going to see a friend of his, so yeah. I'm going to have to let him know we're here, and I'll get out and stand on the side of the road. But these noise-canceling headphones should take care of the um, Hey, do you want to take five minutes, and uh, I'll just come back to you in five uh, minutes? Just, just one, just just one second. Marcelo, estamos aquí. Yo, yo voy a salir para estoy en una conversación en el teléfono. So, pero yo voy a salir y caminar. So, maybe we'll come back. Yeah, I'm back now. Oh, okay. No, we can go. Okay, great. Um, so, so yeah, we're, we're talking about the, the twin, the, the desire to rescue always comes with the desire to simultaneously be rescued by the rescuing of others. Yeah, and that, and that definitely happened. I didn't see it at the time. 
don't need my glasses now since I'm not driving, which is great. Um, anyway, um, I I felt so much guilt about what I'd done to my own family, like a total piece of shit. And so you think that you're right about that, you know? I I was um, wanting that desire to be rescued. Um, I didn't know how to get myself back out of it. You know, I was divorced and I lost everything that, uh, that had ever mattered to me. And, um, I didn't see that ever being repaired and it hasn't been. So I was right. But, um, you know, I, I, I really loved my wife. And, um, when I started in adult, I just thought it was a way to get rich and have a good life together. And I also had a lot of hate and this is as far away from religion as you can get. So by the time that I really realized what a mistake I was making, it was too late. My marriage was already ruined, and uh, I knew that my son was going to grow a family. And that was very difficult to deal with psychologically. Um, that for my son. And I had to, you know, own the fact that I'd done that. My dad, one of the things that did sink in from being a pastor's son was he taught me to accept personal responsibility. So I knew I'm the one that did this. Shy away from that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's when I started feeling like a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what do you think of the, the Mike Pence rule? So Mike Pence famously won't have, have lunch or dinner with any woman who's not his wife unless she's accompanying him. Now, that's, I was raised around when my dad had the same rule pastor, you know, so... Um, and and to be honest, that actually has a whole lot to do with why I ended up letting those girls live in my house. That I was better than everyone else. That I could handle things and couldn't. But I can handle... I don't need to put those safeguards in place because I'm not like most people <laughs> you know that's why i say there's some narcissism involved there so absolutely how um sound ice uh the sound traffic around here yeah the sound keeps breaking up maybe you're further away from your wi-fi uh we'll we'll give it a, we'll give it another couple of minutes and just see how the the sound quality goes but it hasn't been too good the last Five, five, ten minutes. But uh, let me let me ask you about the the universal human need for a hero system. Like everybody, secular, religious, Jew, Christian, Muslim, uh, has a hero system whereby they get to have a special role in the cosmos. That uh, you know, everybody wants to believe that they're kind of at the at the center of the the cosmos, and they have a hero system that kind of denotes what what behavior is heroic. And uh, which is you know, evil, and what, what, you've been through various hero systems. You you grew up an uh, Pentecostal Christian. 
then you became an atheist and a pornographer, then you became an anti-porn activist and a Protestant preacher, and then finally you converted to Roman Catholicism about five years ago. So you've been through various hero systems. What Do you have any reflections on on the hero system, the human need for a hero system, and what it's like to change hero systems? Um, well, as far as what it's like to change hero systems, um, the atheism for me was just a rebellion against what I'd been brought up around when I started believing that maybe it was a bunch of crap based upon all the rules and regulations. But changing from Protestant to Catholic, for instance, instance, um, I didn't see that as being really a, a change. Um, I just saw it as getting closer to what Christianity was intended to be. Um, you know, uh, because even the Catholic catechism calls Protestants part of the church. Uh, of the Catholic Church, but imperfectly joined is how they how they see it. So, from faith in Christianity to atheism, and then back to Christianity. So, going from Protestant to Catholic is just it's just part of Christianity to me. But the hero system, I've never even thought of it in terms. I just, you know, my belief begins by basically looking at this planet and saying this didn't just happen. Somebody created it. And then the reason that Christianity makes the most to me is because of my relationship with my son, how I love him so much, and there's nothing he could do to change that. So I look around and I see this planet. Now, it had to have been created. That creator must love it. It just makes logical sense. What system makes the most sense? Well, in almost every system, you have to earn it. Well, that's not what a loving parent would do. Wait, Only hang, in hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're going to Christian apologetics, which is fine. I, I don't have any objection to that. But I, I want to just keep focused on, on the human need for a hero system. Like we all need yeah, to well, feel a... like, yeah, I know, but you, you're kind of going into Christian apologetics. So I just want to talk about the hero system, the human need for a hero system, the human need to feel special in, in the cosmos that you're kind of kind of at the, at the center and that you, you play a special role in the cosmos. So whether you're a secular, a, a Protestant or a Catholic, you, you still felt that human need to believe that you play a special role in the cosmos. So uh, see if you can, you can address yourself to the, the human need to feel like you're playing a special role in the cosmos and uh, go ahead. Well, I mean, I think that, I think that still, you know, it works along with what I was saying. Um, in my mind, I'm like a member of a family who has parents who love every single child, you know. And so it's not like I'm, you know, I'm a hero. I'm just very important and loved by by someone who matters, by the creator, basically. So I, I, I don't 
think of it in terms of heroism other than, you know, when I'm trying to save people to make myself feel better about who I am as a person. Um, but, you know, other than that, I see it as, um, you know, like I was saying, I, I kind of think because of my relationship with my son, how I love him more than any inexplicable way. I feel like the creator loves me that but I also think that the creator loves you that way. But um, I do think that uh, any parent is going to do things about every single child. So, sure, there are things about us that are more special than others, but not to the extent that it makes us better. It's just like every person in your life, there's certain things about them that are different for the other person in your life, and you really admire those things in them. I feel that way, you know, when it comes, I don't feel like to be a hero who is only, you know, and, and, you know, more special than absolutely everyone else. I just need to feel like I have my own ways where I am special and I am loved for who I am. And you know, what so would, what that's would, why I was saying. Yeah. What would life be like if you came to the realization that you weren't special in, in the cosmos? that there was no group that was special in the cosmos. What would, what would that feel like? What would life be like I mean, with that sort of thinking? Well, it, to, to be accurate and to, to get at the point you're trying to make, I would have to feel like not loved. You know, like I don't have to feel more, more special. Every one of us is special in our own way. But to feel not loved is really at the root of my being. You know, that's why, you know, when I feel like earlier I told you I felt since divorcing my wife that I'm unworthy of love. So that's a driving force. So I don't have to feel like I'm more special than, you know, than anybody else on the planet. But I do feel loved intensely. And if I didn't have that, what would be the point? Yeah, so if nobody had any special role in the cosmos, would that be absolutely kind of soul-crushing? Yeah, and I think that that's kind of actually what's in a way happening to our world now. It's going so crazy because we have tried so hard, you know, as, as a whole, this society has been trying so hard to eliminate religion for example, in religion, you know, one of the driving forces that tells people that they're special for some reason. And as people feel less special, then we start having these crazy things happen like you see on TikTok all the time where, I mean, I even saw one the other day where a person is insisting that they're an animal and they're acting like an animal. You know, some, I forget what it was, what particular animal it was, but that person is trying to convince others that, you know, just like a non-binary person or a transsexual person, I am a whatever they call themselves, an animal. <laughs> you know, you think of me as human, but I see myself as an animal. It's like a transsexual feels like they really are a male, or a transsexual woman feels like they're really a woman. So I think that's a result of people no longer believing that they're loved by the creator you know, of the universe. Um, uh, so I think that that's what happens. 
is people start devolving and and you know and and even in my own life i'm not i'm not trying to say that uh <laughs> you know i'm i'm my case is somehow different i think that even the the stuff that's happened to me is as a result of not feeling deserving of a special love so we just start falling apart uh, okay, Donnie, I'm going to leave it there for today. Do you do you have any final words for today? Oh no, I'm just uh, just trying to to get uh, back to a place where um, where I'm a decent human, you know, and and that's what my goal is: is to always be decent and to never be evil. And uh, since I've screwed up everything I've tried to help, I'm not really trying to. Help in the same ways as before. I mean, I still try to help. You know, the the girl who was involved in my case. You know, I told you I support her 100% financially, but I don't give her any input as to how she should run her life. I don't give her any advice. I tell her, uh, you know, I, I've realized through efforts to try to help others, she tells me that I really don't have anything to give you that way. I could support you financially and tell you to pray and tell you to try to find your path in life. <laughs> so, and that's kind of the, the road that I'm on right now is it's like, I have to realize that uh, I need to help me. You know, I, this, this guy standing in front of my mirror right here, he, he's in need of a lot of help. So focus on that. <laughs> okay, Daddy, I'll talk to you another day. Thanks. All right. Bye. Okay, man. Take care. Okay, I want to go back to this episode of uh, Decoding the Gurus here. Let me play. This is Robert Wright speaking to. I was Chris right Kavanaugh. when Bush was about to propose letting Ukraine into NATO. Byrne says you got to understand it isn't just Putin. Everyone in the national security establishment in Russia considers Ukraine a complete red line. Okay, and 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 he he separately sent a memo aside from that uh, private email to Condi, who was Secretary of State then. Uh, he was at this point ambassador to Russia, okay, Bill Burns. This is before Michael McFaul. And uh, he separately sent a memo about uh, summarizing his conversations with, with Russian elites about uh, admitting Ukraine to NATO. And the title of the memo was Miet means Miet. Okay, so a very many very smart observers from way back said this is a mistake he even, I mean, Burns even predicted this. This will lead them to screw around in eastern Ukraine, and and there were lots of people doing that. So I don't, I don't think it's an outlandish perspective, but but my, I guess my larger point is I think you should be able to talk about that without being accused of reciting uh, Putin talking points. I was against NATO in the uh, NATO expansion in the '90s, so you can't say I'm I'm saying it because Putin says it. He was, you know, he wasn't in charge then. Bob, actually, I watched an hour-long interview with William Burns yesterday talking about Putin because... I okay, let me set this up. So the reason that I enjoy the podcast Decoding the Gurus is that they frequently do a good job of analyzing the factual and logical bases that uh, various gurus make their points on. So let's analyze the factual and logical bases of the two blokes who do decoding the gurus. This is Christopher Kavanaugh and Matt Brown. 
So there are a couple of uh, psychologists and anthropologists. I know that you've referenced him previously and the fact that he recognized Ukraine as a red line for Russia. And this this actually, uh, gray zone and stuff we can talk about, but a point that I would make here is I heard this interview on Hard Talk. I think this was before Crimea, where it was some Russian official, I think of the foreign minister or something, and he was talking about Ukraine. And he was discussing ongoing events there and, and so on. And maybe it was after the Maidan revolution. But in, in any case, I listened to that interview. And I remember I hadn't paid that much attention before the, this event, you know, the uh, geopolitics are. And what struck me was essentially the Russian official is saying what William Burns describes and what you have discussed, like... The view that, well, we regard Ukraine as a very important part of our sphere of influence. And, you know, from the Russian perspective, the West is trying to take the strategic ally and pull them into their orbit. And they had a leader which was more pro-Russian, who was ousted, and, and they want to draw closer ties with the EU. And all through that conversation, the thing that struck me, and I, I think I'm more sensitive to it as somebody from Ireland, was this sense that what right do you have? Okay, so this is good. So what's the basis for his argument here? The basis for his argument is his feeling, which is informed by his upbringing in Ireland. To tell another country which way they orientate their foreign policy, what group or society they want to be closer to. So his, his point is what right... Does Russia have to tell any other country what uh, what they get to do? So let's see. Hey, Donnie Pauling, you're back. Yeah, I happen to find a spot here that's got like full full bars of reception. I don't know if uh, at the yeah, end there you better. can hear too much. Yeah, yeah. No, it's much 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 better. So yeah, did you did you think of a point that you wanted to elaborate on? Yeah, I mean, I was just, you know, I don't know if you got that there at the end where um, I was just saying that I think people break down even like I have in my own life um, when they don't feel loved, you know, and valued and special in some sort of way. Um, and, you know, that's that's really what I, w I think happened uh, even with me is that's the root of it. I mean, all of us have to experience it and there's never a, an excuse for the actions that we take that are wrong. But um, there's always a cost. <laughs> okay, I, so, I do. so how are you meeting that need today? Need today? Um, self improvement, focusing more on myself. Um, I, you know, there's a, issues that happened before where I didn't feel like, uh, you know, I needed it, you know, because I felt like I could handle everything, and, um, you know, focusing on others tries to fill that that void that you have inside. I have gone to extensive counseling it it was never something i had to do um, never a requirement of me but i knew i needed it and so i've gone to you know secular counseling i had a psychiatrist for um, a few years and worked through a lot of things there and had to uh, be willing to own what i found and come to the realization that i'm a broken person and the person i need to be trying to fix who is broken is me you know, instead of other people. Um, I could still help other people in ways like I was mentioning, you know, financially or something like that. But to actually try the psychological um, help 
you know, I always thought that I could fix people. No, I can't. I can't fix. I can't even fix me yet. So um, who knows if that'll ever happen? So I definitely can't fix someone else. So how how important was that uh, psychotherapy? Oh, it's it was incredibly helpful. And it's not like they're saying anything special that you don't know if you're not a person who's intelligent. It's just that if you find a good therapist they'll that you trust, you'll allow them to make you face stuff that you always, you know, even if you might know, you associate that with what other people need rather than what you need. So I think a psychotherapist, when you form a level of trust with them, is a person that's going to do the most benefit if you allow them to speak into your life and you'll take what they, what they teach you, you know, and you'll accept what, they, what you find. And you find someone that doesn't make you feel bad about yourself, even if they're making you address things that make you feel bad about yourself. <laughs> You know, you, you just have to realize that, you know, even though they're only doing their job, they're trying to help you become a better person. So, um, and, you know, and like, for example, you, Luke, on, on this conversation, the style that you have where you earlier you were saying, oh, I'm not trying to make you feel like a bad person. I know that, you know, because I've been through um, uh, a lot of counseling. So I, I take that. You're saying, hey, here's another perspective, because we all get locked in our own perspective. And, and we forget to look outside of it. We will judge others by a, a, a more strict level than we will ourselves because we don't want to see ourselves in the way that others will. So um, I think that therapy is important in that aspect is because, you, you know, if you, if you get a good therapist and you reach a place where you can trust them, they're going to make you see yourself the way that you look at other people and the way that other people look at you. Okay, then, let me let me let me jump in. Uh, so, let let's let's get more specific about what does it mean to be broken. So, I'll try to share some examples from my own life, and then maybe you can get specific about what what it means to be broken. So, it, it's something that we hear a lot, people saying they're broken, but what does it mean specifically? So, I understand that the concept of brokenness it means that your reactions to stimuli aren't appropriate that, that uh, your reactions to life aren't always adaptive. So, for example, if you tell me to, you know, F off for some reason after I ask a question that you don't like, you tell me to F off and you, you hang up on the call. Like, <laughs> if, if that, if I'm still steaming about that three weeks later, that's obviously a maladaptive response. So if my right. wrist is working, that I can, I can use, use my hand and I can, I can maneuver with with my wrist going up and down and side to side. So my wrist is adaptive. It's working as it should. If my emotions are adaptive, I'm not steaming about you telling me to F off three weeks later it, because there's no, there's no reason that that needs to be still bothering me three weeks later. Now, mm -hmm. if I'm annoyed an hour later, two hours later, fine. If like, if my girlfriend breaks up with me, if I'm still sad about that three weeks later, that still seems to be an adaptive response. But if I'm moping about a girlfriend breaking up with me three years later, obviously that's a maladaptive response. Just like if I can't move my, my hand up and down or side to side on my wrist, that, that means there's something maladaptive, something not working with my wrist. So there's something not working with my emotions if I'm still stewing 
about something that, yeah. say, a grade school teacher said to me. And so one, one thing that, that I, I got from therapy is that a lot of the people that I condemned, that, that I made fun of, I was actually jealous of them. So, for example, I came to therapy one day and I, I talked about going to an engagement party and how these, these two young women like saw each other at the party and squealed and kind of ran into each other's arms. And, and I was mocking it. And my therapist said, well, don't you wish that you could have seen someone at the party where you were so delighted that you squealed with, with joy and you, you, know, you ran into her arms? Mm -hmm. And I go, oh, yeah, I, I guess I do. So... Talk to me. What does it actually mean to be broken? And maybe if you can, give me an example of what it means for, for Donnie to be broken. Well, I think that part of what it means to be broken, I think that, for you know, just like humans, that's a very, um, that's a response that's going to be very detailed and very specific and unique by individual. But I think at the root of a lot of brokenness is, is uh, self-centeredness. Uh, because, you know, like you were talking about, um, you know, you said, uh, you know, that uh, an hour from now, it's okay for you to still be mad if I tell you to F off, but three weeks from now, it's not. Whereas three weeks from now, it's still okay to be um, uh, hurting from a breakup. Okay. What you're saying there is that throughout human ex experience, we've discovered these norms, you know, what the norm is. Um, the norm is a human's going to still hurt in several weeks from a romantic breakup. You know, the norm is that a person is going to allow a conversation to bother them for a certain time period and then not more. But what happens with broken people is they think those norms don't apply to them. So, you know, the person who is still right now smarting about something that a grade school teacher said to them way back then is so focused upon themselves that they think that the societal norms don't apply it's okay for them to still be hurting you know and they're making it very selfish um and, and that's what the is at the root of brokenness is uh, you know a self-centeredness you start focusing so much on yourself <laughs> um for me there's a lot of brokenness because I far started focusing so much on myself after breaking up my family, you know, and it was a focusing on myself that led to breaking up my family to begin with, but um, continuously thinking that there's some way I could make up for this wrong that I did and obsessing about that. That's a broken person. You're too focused on yourself. I want to make up for this stuff that I know caused pain in myself and others. I can't accept the fact that when this happens, there's a time of healing and then moving on. There, yeah, there's consequences for the actions, but no matter what I do from here on in life, it's not going to change what I've already done. And I have to accept it and move on rather than obsess about it and think, well, maybe if I do this next thing, that'll make me a better person and it will make up for what I did in the past. You know, so, um, so brokenness, I think, is very rooted in, in self-centeredness and, and selfishness. Okay, so have you t heard of the term doing a geographic? No, I haven't, actually. Okay, so if, if our, let's say our mutual friend Steve uh, moves to Miami and I tell you he's doing a geographic, would, would that, what, what would you, what would that mean to you, if anything? 
I mean, if I'm going to guess, I'm just going to say he's getting away from everything and starting over in a different, you know, right, location. Right. But, he's trying to solve his problems by changing location. Yeah. So, so if if I say Tom is Tom just moved to Denver, Donnie, he's doing a geographic. It's it, yeah. understand that Tom is trying to get away from his problems by moving to a new place. So yeah. I'm going to offer that to you, whether you were getting married, uh, doing porn, being an activist against porn, becoming a Christian pastor and becoming a Roman Catholic and becoming a truck driver. I'm wondering to what extent have you been doing a geographic, simply shifting profession or uh, religious yeah. affiliation to get away from a, a life that doesn't work for you? Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly what's happening. Um, the the porn stuff, I was trying to escape a life where I didn't think that um, my wife and son and I are going to be able to afford all the things that in mind, I believe we deserve to have. So I try to take a shortcut and earn money in that. And then, you know, when I'm realizing that other people are being hurt and this isn't going to help matters any. I'm actually making the universe worse than um, going to Christ as a Christian was how I was dealing with that. That's doing another geographic. It's like a reset. It's a, you know, it's a do over where you can, you know, that of course the theology is, is that everything you've done wrong is paid for by Jesus, somebody else. You get a reset. And then speaking, um, there's a, double meaning and, and you know more than one reason for doing that for one thing it feels good to stand up in front of a bunch of people and be paid to talk about yourself but for another hey now i'm this person i'm going to live up to this moral standard i get to start over that's definitely doing a geographic as you described it you know um i wouldn't say that the conversion to catholicism is is that at all um, I just thought that I just saw that as a natural progression of a person who is trying to get to the roots of his faith and realizing that they started with this particular church long before Protestants ever came along. But yeah, the Christianity in general was definitely doing a geographic. Um, as far as being the truck driver, um, that's not really the same. I, it, it, well, maybe it is in a way. You know, I, I do like the idea that. I work all the time. I have 24 hours a week off. I'm separated from the entire public. You know, I'm I'm just out in a truck. You know, I've got a driving partner, but he sleeps while I drive. I sleep while he drives. So you're still, you're pretty much solo. And I do feel like, okay, this guy, Donnie, he probably needs to be separated from the public right now and do some healing. And driving is a great way to do a lot of praying and thinking and listening to audiobooks and self-help books, which I do, you know, every single day. So yeah, it's, it's definitely an ex uh, along that same path. But I do feel, of course, I felt this way about every geographic, <laughs> but I do feel like it's, it's good and appropriate. Um, I'm making a living. Um, I like that, of course, but um, it's given me time to heal and reflect. And I don't even know what it's going to take to heal. You know, I've been to a lot of counseling and, and, and been given a path to follow. 
I just have to trust it's going to work. But do I know it's going to work? I don't have the experience, so I can't say that I know it's going to work because I haven't been healed yet. So I can't tell you from experience this will heal me. <laughs> right. So let, let's let's just uh, for for discussion's sake imagine a, a scenario whereby you go off the rails in the future say a, a drunk driving offense or you know some offense that that everyone understands is wrong and and blows up your life like if that sort of thing happened in the future and we were trying to understand why it happened like what what would be going on for you now that would leave you vulnerable to blowing up your life like is is there I mean any... I go ahead I actually, I actually have um, just, uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the drunk driving thing because um, I did get, uh, um, you know, a, a, a policeman who thought that I was driving under the influence. Well, he didn't think I was driving under the influence. I was in a parking lot, stopped and, and sleeping in my pickup. And, um, you know, he got a report that there was a guy in the parking lot sleeping in his pickup and he might be drunk. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm fighting that. Even right now, I have an attorney. Um, it's never happened before in my life. Um, but yeah, I. Uh, so you know, I. I was uh, in a parking lot, and it, you know, it, but the alcohol wasn't an escape at that time. It was just, you know, at the end of a long um, trip. Um, came back from Montana that particular day, driven all day, and I decided to go and have a couple of drinks and listen to some music. Yeah, you know, and and alcohol makes um, you know just kind of relaxes you quicker than you know the wind down it takes for under normal circumstances. Um, since that day, I haven't had a single drop. Um, I'm like, man, look how close I am to losing absolutely everything yet again. Um, I don't feel like it was something where I was trying to escape anything. I just think it was, you know, having a couple of beers and listening to music and trying to relax in a place where there's, you know, you can still be anonymous even if people are around. Um, but if it happens again in the future, what am I going to do? No, what are you going to, uh, what, what are you, what? How are you going to reflect upon where you are right now that would leave you open to a, a blowing up your life episode? Like what could possibly be missing or what are you possibly not doing in your life right now that you really should be doing to minimize the chances of this type of self-destruction, if anything? Um, well, you know, it's uh, at this particular point, after all the counseling I've had, um, I, I, I'm sure I'm confident that I won't uh, fall apart. Um, I'll be very disappointed, you know, if it, it results in a temporary, you know, derailment of the career I'm on, you know, the career path I'm on at the moment. But um, I don't think it will derail me uh, in any way. Um, I just think that, uh, you know, through counseling, I've got the tools to handle things in a better way, you know, to, I, to be accountable to people in my life, which I have been to, um, you know, I, there was no, 
there's going to be no arguments from me if things don't go my way, you know, in the legal proceedings that follow. So you're you know. saying that you're in a good place right now, that, that there's nothing that you should be doing that you're not doing. Yeah. To take I care mean, of yourself. I, right. I'm focusing on myself at the moment um, and, and not because of uh, a self-centeredness, but kind of the opposite. I think the self-centered part of me wants to not focus on himself, wants to focus on others, thinks he right. could help others. Right. But I'm realizing, no, this guy, this guy needs a lot of work. And that's the one that you actually can help. <laughs> okay. Know? I got a, I got a friend who's got a problem, intermittent problem with rage. So for example, he was checking out of a gr grocery store and he couldn't get the self checkout to, to work. And so he ends up screaming you know, and just walking out because he finds it so frustrating to deal with the self-checkout and this, these intermittent explosions of rage are not something that, you know, happens once a year. These things happen uh, fairly regularly. Um, so you probably had your, your own issues with, with anger. What do you think's going mm. on for, for someone who's, who's just out of control with incandescent levels of rage on a regular basis? Um, yeah, I do have issues with anger in um, a whole lot more since the prison experience um, because um, you start feeling attacked by everybody in society, um, even if it's not the case. Uh, you take everything as a slight because um, you can't understand in your mind that, no, not everybody on the planet knows your story and is responding to you because of what happened you know, with, with this teenager. Um, so again, it's still self-centeredness. It's like you take everything personal, even if that, you know, like your friend in, in his example, the uh, machine is messing up. Probably even if he's not conscious of it, he's saying, why is this machine picking on me? <laughs> and he's making it personal again. So that's what I do, um, and, and I learned through counseling um, to, to help with the anger and the bitterness is it's like, you know, the stuff is not about you. This is just life. We all have to deal with it, you know, and where there's a world in existence, there's going to be issues and problems, and you're not the only one. This isn't a, a case where you're being picked on, which I think is at the root of most people who experience rage. They make everything about them and feel like they, once again, based on their life experience or whatever, are being picked on. But realizing that machine messing up is not a case where you're being picked on, or me. That stranger that gave you a look is not because they know your whole life story and hate you. <laughs> you know, people have a bad day. That person's probably having a bad day. <laughs> so... Um, it's once again having to get outside of yourself and realizing that it's not all about you. Now, what about road rage? Do you do you experience road rage in your work? Um, no, I don't let myself do that um, because it's too dangerous when you're in a, a vehicle as big as I'm in. But um, I do definitely get uh, some annoyances. I just won't let them evolve into road rage, you know, and people cut in front of me. But once again, I got to, you know, realize that that's not personal. That person in that car that just cut in front of me and, and slowed down, you know, much faster than they should, they have no idea who's driving the truck 
it's not personal. They're not trying to get at me. <laughs> they're, you know, they're doing their own thing. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I think that that's what, you know, again, it all comes down to being selfish. People take everything so personal. Someone cuts you off. You feel like, oh, I'm not going to let this person get one over on me. Well, that person's not trying to get one over on you. And that's what you got to realize. It is not, it's not personal. That person's not picking on you. Okay, uh, Donnie, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on. Do you do you have any right. final thoughts? Anything you want to say? No, no, I'll get back off here now for good. So okay, man, take care, bro. All right, bye. Okay, bye. Take care. All right, I want to go back to this Chris Kavanaugh on decoding the gurus. Here we go. To take the strategic ally and pull them into their orbit, and they had a leader which was more pro-Russian who was ousted, and and they want to draw closer ties with the EU. And all through that conversation, the thing that struck me, and I, I think I'm more sensitive to it as somebody from Ireland, was this sense that what right do you have to tell another country which way they orientate their foreign policy, what group or society they want to be closer to? So what? Okay, so what right? All right, so th there are no rights in in this regard that are akin to the rights of being a citizen of the United States operating as a citizen in the United States, right? Then you have certain rights. So if you're locked up, you can only be held for something like up to 48 hours before charges are brought against you. But there are no rights when it comes to what Russia can say about Ukraine. So Chris Kavanaugh asks, what right? And the answer is there are no rights applicable here. Right. Rights only have meaning when there is a concrete state that extends them to its citizens. And then those rights are going to change over time. So during COVID, all these rights that people took for granted, such as gathering together to worship, going to work, right, going for a walk, right, going to a party, going to a bar, all these rights got taken away just like that. Public health officials and politicians said you no longer have these rights. We're in a state of emergency. So rights, like everything else, are contingent. They're contingent on a particular time, a particular space, a particular uh, nation state, right? And there are no rights that govern what countries can say about other countries. So Chris Kavanaugh is saying, by what right does Russia have to say to Ukraine, you can't choose your own foreign policy? And I would say, Chris Kavanaugh, there are no rights here. So what makes decoding the gurus so good when they are good is when they analyze the facts and the, the logical bases of what gurus are saying. Now, there is no factual basis for international rights. Who guarantees, who defends, who ensures international rights? Nobody. If you say the United Nations, the United Nations ha has no power, right? This whole human rights movement began in the 1970s by disaffected leftists who realized that all their political activism was going nowhere. And so they changed their political activism to moral activism so that they could feel better. Now, they weren't making any difference in the world because rights are only extended by nation states to their particular citizens at a particular time and place. And those rights change over time. Universal human rights have no objective meaning in any enforceable term. There is no power that guarantees, defends, and protects international human rights. 
they, international human rights are a crusade with almost zero relevance for how the real world works. They are an opportunity for people who participate in the international human rights movement to feel important and to feel special, but they make bupkis difference. They make zero difference in the real world. There are no international human rights. They are purely a wish list. They're a figment of people's imagination. So by what right, Chris Kavanaugh asked, there are no rights that operate with regard to what nations can say about other nations. Now, there are certain rules for how great powers operate, and the, it's not a right. It's just a, a generalized tendency that we've seen throughout history, and we have no reason to believe it changes now, that uh, great powers are very concerned with what their neighbors do, particularly with regard to foreign policy. And no, smaller nations don't get to assert any rights against great powers living next to them. Mexico, Cuba, Venezuela, Central American nations, Canada, don't get to choose their own foreign policy. Right? If you're in the Americas, the United States gives you the limits for what you get to choose with regard to your foreign policy. And if you don't abide by what the United States says, it will smash you. It will destroy you. And the same goes for Russia and its neighbors. That's how the world works. We're all locked in an iron cage together. And what rights do you have when you're locked in an iron cage with other people? You only have those rights that you and your group can defend, right? What's the best way to have rights when you're locked in an iron cage with other people is to make yourself and your group as powerful as possible to minimize any incentives for other people to bother you and to intrude upon your rights? Russia thinks that they don't like Ukraine getting closer to the EU. Tough luck. You're not the rulers. You can put pressure on them. Uh, tough luck. Well, what are you going to do about it, Chris? Okay. This is the way great powers have always operated. What Russia is doing to Ukraine is no different from how great power powers have operated throughout history. So you can say tough luck to reality, right? This is what Chris Kavanaugh is saying right now is the equivalent of saying to the universe, I don't believe in the law of gravity. And so if anyone tries to assert to me that there's such a thing as a law of gravity, I say, boo, tough luck. I don't feel that gravity has any effect on me. Well, try to defy the law of gravity. Try to defy the laws of great power politics. And you will get smashed just as Ukraine is getting smashed by Russia right now. You can, you know, uh, withdraw economic support and stuff. What you can't do is send people into the country and just deny that you're doing that. You, you can't do it. Uh, on what basis? Right. Uh, on what basis? Who enforces that you can't do it? Right. Chris Kavanaugh says Russia can't invade Ukraine. Well, it did. Right. Chris Kavanaugh's got bad epistemics. Russia did invade Ukraine. So obviously it can. And obviously great powers have done this throughout history. This is the way the world works. So Chris Kavanaugh is here shaking his fists at the laws of great power politics. He's the equivalent of a guy shaking his fist at the law of gravity. Militarily annex parts of the country. And that's what they did, right? And the way that the person spoke about it. You can't annex part of another country 
Well, Russia did, right? It happens. And and so who who guarantees these rights that you're imagining, Chris Kavanaugh? Nobody. Was like, Ukraine doesn't have the right to decide that they don't want to be within Russia's sphere. Okay, so on what basis does Ukraine have a right to decide whether or not to be in Russia's sphere? There's no such right. Who accords such right? God? Are you saying God has given every nation state an inalienable right to choose its own foreign policy? Well, the world has never worked that way. Like, th think about the nation state of Israel, right? Right there in the, in the Middle East, it was continually getting smashed by great powers. Egypt, uh, the, the Babylonians, uh, the Medes and the, the Persians, the, the Greeks and the Romans, the, the, the Arabs, the, the Turks, the, the British, all right? So throughout history, the small nation of Israel was continually getting smashed by more powerful nations. That's how the world works. Of influence, or they want to be closer to NATO, or, or indeed seek NATO membership. And when it comes to NATO And uh, Piggy says, if you put out a potted flower on your porch in Hebron, the UN may, will make you take it off. Well, how many divisions does the UN have in Hebron? Right. If some military officer or policeman comes and makes you take a potted plant off your porch, I, I don't think they're UN military or UN police. And if they are, they're only there because more powerful nations have agreed with it. It is serving the interests of more powerful nations to have people do this. The UN has no agency or autonomy to operate in, the, in Hebron beyond whatever greater powers decide to accord it because it's in the greater powers' interest. Membership. I'm always stuck with the feeling that it's talked about as if... This is key, right? He's stuck with the feeling. Yes, right? Chris Cavanaugh is an anthropologist, right? He has no expertise in foreign policy. He knows nothing about how great powers work. So Chris Cavanaugh is a Northern Irish cognitive anthropologist who occasionally moonlights as a social psychologist. He has longstanding interest in the psychology of conspiracy theorists and pseudoscience. His academic research focuses on the cognitive science of religion and ritual psychology. He lives happily in Japan with his family. Always a little suspicious when people need to put in their own bio that they, you know, that they're happy. But uh, he obviously has no training in great power politics, in international relations, in, in political science. And the whole basis of what he's saying here is just strictly his feelings. That's it. If, if he had an argument to make, he'd make the argument. If he had case law to cite, he'd cite case law. If he had international law to cite, he'd cite international law. But all he can cite are his feelings. If you know, Ukraine was on the precipice of entering NATO. And that wasn't the case, right? Like, so what... Ukraine was a de facto member of NATO, right? Sometimes there's very little difference between being a formal member of something and being a de facto member of something. So if you live with a woman for 15 years, she is de facto your wife, right? She may not be legally according to law your wife she is de facto your wife and if you divorce her if you want to split up she can go to court and go after your property every bit as much as a wife can whatever way that putin perceived it wasn't that you know in six months time russia ukraine was about to be admitted to
Ukraine was already a de facto member of NATO. It is right now a de facto member of NATO. How is Ukraine fighting off Russia so effectively? Because it is a de facto member of NATO. It trained with NATO. It is getting supplied by NATO and the United States. Right? This war is not Russia versus Ukraine. This war is Russia versus NATO. Right? That's how Ukraine's able to fight off Russia, because it's not just Ukraine. Ukraine is embodying NATO here. NATO. But if they were, that is the right of countries to decide. It's the same way. That is the right of countries to decide. Okay, who says? Uh, on what basis? Right? It has never worked this way in reality. Right? It's never worked this way in reality that small nation states next to much more powerful nation states have an inalienable right to choose whatever foreign policy or alliances that they want to participate in. It's never operated this way. Great powers smash neighboring powers that oppose them. That that little, uh, I, I forget which country it is, but like Australia was upset, right? Because another country was starting to cozy up to China. The Solomon Islands. And potentially allowing China to build military bases. But again, Australia doesn't have the right then the right. Who gives these rights that he keeps talking about? It's always talking about the right, but bad epistemics, bro, right? Who accords the right? Who defends these rights? Who empowers these rights? Who regulates these rights? Right? There's nobody. We're all stuck in an iron cage together. We're stuck in an iron cage together, and you come over and you rip a candy bar out of my hand. Now, Chris Kavanaugh can say, by what right did he rip that candy bar out of your hand. But if no one's enforcing the rules in the iron cage and no one enforces the rules in international relations, unless it's in the self-interest of great powers to enforce whatever arbitrary rules they decide to enforce at the time. United States doesn't follow international law when it goes against its self-interest. You can never expect any nation to enforce international law when it goes against its own survival, when it goes against its own best interests. United States invaded Iraq in 2003 against international law. We do it all the time. We instigate coups. Okay, we wreck countries. We invade countries. We violate international law all the time. All great powers do this, right? Because the number one task for any nation state is survival. And so if you're faced with a choice between survival versus following international law, Everybody's going to choose survival, just as if you're facing a choice between survival and obeying the law. You're going to choose survival. To, you know, just unilaterally decide. They can put political pressure, and that's the bit to me, like with cognitive empathy. And uh, the chat says, the only rights that are true are from God. Uh, sure, so they're true in a spiritual sense, but th there's not much empirical evidence that God's going to come down to this earth and enforce those rights. Where is the cognitive empathy for Ukraine and for Finland and for these countries which are bordering Russia, which are menaced by Russia, and that are under... You can have all the cognitive empathy in the world. It, it doesn't take much effort to understand why Finland and Sweden want to join NATO after Russia invades Ukraine, right? So just because you have cognitive empathy doesn't mean that you then say this is objectively good from the perspective of an American or an Israeli or, or whatever, right? Cognitive empathy does not mean you agree with other parties.
right? Is it in America's best interest to have Finland and Sweden join NATO? I, I don't have a strong opinion, but I would tend to think no. I, I think the United States should get out of NATO. Not a strong opinion. I haven't deeply thought about this. I, I'm more in favor of the United States shifting out of NATO, paying much more attention to Northeast Asia. Understandably, seeking out to, you know, they want to join NATO, Sweden and, and Finland or... I want a lot of things that I'm never going to have, right? When I walk down the street, I see, I see things that I want and that I'm never going to have. When I go to a dinner party, I frequently see things that I want that I'm never going to have. Just because I want something doesn't mean that I'm entitled by Almighty God or natural law or the law of man to get it. Right. What you want is is simply what you want. It doesn't have any greater uh, command than that. He, Chris Kavanaugh thinks that because he feels certain things that therefore they're objectively universally correct. The recent countries that are joining, this is a predictable outcome when you invade countries neighboring. And if a NATO expansion is the geopolitical goal, you know, Putin's cognitive empathy is lacking because he's basically united Europe. Okay, so Putin's cognitive empathy is lacking. Why? Right, you can have... It reminds me of Bismarck. This is the best illustration. Bismarck said he had, he had a complete emotional sympathy for Polish nationalism, but if Polish nationalists did absolutely anything in action to pursue that, he would smash them because a strong Poland next door to Germany was not in Germany's best interests. So you can have cognitive empathy and smash people. I've had cognitive empathy and smash people. In a way that it wasn't. What, what, what I'm saying, what I'm saying, I mean, a, a few things. I mean, first of all, you said NATO membership was far away. Well, what Putin was explicit in complaining about was the kind of de facto NATOization of Ukraine. We, we were sending more and more weapons in, NATO advisors, joint NATO-Ukrainian exercises. That, that, that was real, and he, he said very explicitly it bothered him. Leave that aside. The way the person you described it was talking about NATO doesn't, uh, Ukraine doesn't have the right to decide to join NATO or the EU. I would never put it that way. I would say NATO and the EU have a right to decide who joins them. Of course, they're membership organizations. They're, they're selective. Uh, and uh, Rights have nothing to do with it. Right, let's get some real talk here from my friend and yours, Richard Spencer. They're not reading the newspaper at all. And if they're watching anything, it might be, you know, some kind of Fox News type thing. But they're basically getting their information from anonymous sources, 4chan, some Facebook group, uh, you know, some weirdo on Twitter or so on. Because the alternative is CNN. It's chaotic. Like the alternative CNN and whatnot. And it's just, yeah, but they should be watching CNN. Like, again, no. I, yes, like, they need to be well, But I, real quick, I agree with you on the church point and whatnot, where it's like this idea of like, uh, you know, like something, I, I like to think of it as the idea of something that is a, a sort of grassroots organization, uh, sort of like a people who are like kind of, you know, na uh, native to an area that sort of exists in village communities and whatnot. Like they should probably be hearing from a top-down structure that is built out of a, you know, bottom-up uh, systems, right? Where it's like the church only exists because of the fact that uh, everyone in the village attends it. Uh, you know, the pastor probably does other things on the days other than Sunday. And it's just sort of, it, it, it's built out of the things around it, right? So things like CNN have this huge issue of like, you're appealing to all of the United States of America and the people who are running this thing are like investors, et cetera. There's like a huge financial incentive. It's not purely uh, uh, symbiotic, you know? But you're, you're just giving some rather kind of organic and naive version of what these things were. I mean, the, the dissemination of art and information 
and media, et cetera, it's always been centralized and it's always been connected to a power structure. And I'm telling you, that is a necessary thing. No, I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing. Like, I, I'm very for centralization. I'm just saying it's yeah. like, a, like the way it exists currently is pretty zogged. Well, I, well, okay, let's not, let's try to avoid language like that just so I don't get banned. But, what? no, um, me, I'll get banned. Okay, well, um, I know you're, you, can, you can use other terms in that. I agree that, like, I think we're in a point of instability for the simple reason that people can get information elsewhere. And that can be a great thing if you're a serious scholar. But I think it's actually a really bad thing for 98% of the population. And we shouldn't judge everyone in the same way. Like, we're not all equal. And most people really do need to be told, like, this is up, this is down, this is right, and this is left. And you're we need to be, the choir. yeah. And, and most people don't want decisions outside of like, which, you know, variety of mayonnaise, and they shouldn't be tasked with such decisions. Um, right. So 98% of the population should only get their information from authoritative sources. Uh, no, I, I, I don't agree with that. You want people getting their information from the best sources. So sometimes that's going to mean authoritative sources. So I've walked down the street and encountered people who read me every day at the time that I was blogging a lot. And for them, it was very well in, in their best interest for, for information and entertainment value to read me every day. So sometimes authoritative sources are the best sources, but uh, this idea that 98% of people should only get their information from authoritative sources. Right, that's a level of elitism that's a little too far for my taste. So, like, I, I think we need to recognize that. Now, I agree that I think the other reason why we're in an in, in unstable world is because there is this, like, legitimacy crisis of the mainstream media. And in many ways, that's, that, that's kind of not their fault to some degree in the sense it's about technological change. But it, it is kind of their fault to a large degree that they've kind of blown and, and, and continue to blow their shot at being the authority. And, and so I, I do think we're kind of like entering this uncharted territory of like a lack of authority or legitimacy in these organs that really do have to keep, you know, America together. I mean, and some of that's good and some of that's bad, right? It, it's not like, you know, high trust in, in social institutions is just an unalloyed good. And it's not like high distrust in our primary, you know, social institutions is an unalloyed good, right? There's nuance here. Sometimes our institutions go off the rails, right? If our institutions are acting against our best interests, it is adaptive to distrust them. If our institutions are acting in our interests, then it is adaptive to be positively disposed towards them. So I'm not for the elite or for the populace. I'm not disestablishmentarian or anti-disestablishmentarian. All right. Everything is contingent. It depends on the time and the place. All right. The, the CDC did a horrible job with regard to COVID tests in February and March into April of 2020. On the other hand, they've done some good work. Now, on the other hand, they pumped out vastly inflated numbers about the number of people who die from flu each year to try to encourage people to take the flu vaccine. Right? That was dishonest. And because it was dishonest, they reduced public trust in them so people then became more suspicious when the CDC came out and said everyone should get COVID vaccines. And I'm a big supporter of COVID vaccines, and I'm generally a supporter of the conventional wisdom with regard to COVID. Just for instance, Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Brandon, Biden is President Brandon. President Brandon, right. Um, he, he was offering America, like, back to normalcy. Like, I'm just a normal guy. I'm not a shrill liberal. Like, I'm actually, you know, I mean. He, he, I love Brandon. He's kind I of absolutely like, love Brandon. I voted for him, and I'll vote for him again. Me too. Around. Dude, I absolutely I, love you. Ice cream? 
yeah, he, he's ice cream and waste Ray-Bans. What more could you ask for? But, but what I'm saying is that he was offering a kind of normalcy, you know, and the sense of like, I'm not going to be, I'm not Hillary Clinton. I'm not going to be a shrill Antifa feminist or something. I'm, I'm just some normal guy and I'm old and I'm like connect, I'm like you. And even that didn't take. I mean, whenever I walk around town, uh, here, I mean, granted, I live in Montana, so it's a little bit different. Whenever I walk How's around Montana? town, it's great. It's beautiful. But whenever I walk around town, it is inevitable that I will see someone with a, like, Let's Go Brandon t-shirt. Okay, so why do people have Let's Go Brandon t-shirts? Right? Because someone who's not on the left, understandably, has this sense that almost all of society's major institutions are aligned against him. That the culture war has gone in only one direction as far as results over the past 60 years. And so when you're caught in a current, all right, and the current is sweeping you out to sea at four miles an hour, you have to swim faster than four miles an hour if you're going to directly fight the current to get back to land. And your average American today who's not on the left feels like the cultural current, the institutional current is flowing against him and so he has to fight harder. What happens when people feel like they have to fight harder just to survive? What happens when people feel like they're metaphorically being swept out to sea? Right? They tend to become more intense and more extreme in their rhetoric. Right? So it's not like the Let's Go Brandon movement is primarily about reactions to Joe Biden. It's primarily about a sense that non-leftist Americans feel like they're being pulled out to sea, that all, almost all their institutions are aligned against them, that they have only been on the losing side of the culture wars. And this is a primitive, primordial, knee-jerk, kinesthetic reaction to that sense that you're drowning and being carried out to sea. And so you say, let's go, Brandon. Right? It doesn't really have much to do with Joe Biden. And so like, even Joe Biden is treated as like the devil. It's like, you're going to say fuck you to the president of the United States. Like there is a serious legitimacy crisis in the United States. And Well, why is there a serious legitimacy crisis in the United States? Because the left has won all the culture wars over the past 60 years. The left has taken over all our institutions. And so the, the media is dominated by the left. The academy is dominated by the left. The legal profession is dominated by the left. Social workers and psychology and therapy is all on the left. And so people feel like they're being swept out to sea. In That's the so great. World. It's so great. I love it. Well, I'm coming I mean, back, baby, round two. Yeah, it is what it is. Okay. Okay. Let's uh, get back to some decoding, decoding the gurus, Chris Kavanaugh. As for, of course, Putin doesn't have the right to do the various things he's done. Uh, It's meaningless to talk about whether Putin has the right or doesn't have the right. Rights only have meaning to the extent that they are enforceable. And if anyone's going to enforce these rights against, against Putin, it's only because great powers opposing Putin decide to do so. There's no international force that's going to enforce international law against Putin unless the United States and NATO wants to get on board. Crimea. I have been a total stickler for international law for decades, and uh, I have complained when the U.S. violates it. And and by the way, I, I, I think that complicates our position as as sermonizer about violations of international law. Our troops in Syria right now violate international law. The invasion of Iraq violated international law. People complain that's what about ism. 
I would say whataboutism is a critical part of any moral system. You're allowed to complain about when people don't practice what they preach, A. And I would also say the fact that we ourselves have been so hypocritical on international law reduces the value uh, of, of, of now standing up and trying to reinforce the principle uh, of, of that invasion is bad, although I certainly believe it is, because much of the world isn't going to take that seriously, because they, they see this as just a proxy war. They see us as imp- imperialistic, as, uh, as Russia, and so on. But, but the question I would ask you, Chris, to get back to prediction, mm-hmm. okay, right now we're in a war that's killed tens of thousands of people, has displaced millions, and... Yes, annexation happens, as Elliot Blatt says. Wow, Elliot Blatt, you haven't caught into the show in, in, in a month, bro. Like, I, I feel like we're losing touch. I mean, where has the magic gone? I mean, we had days of wine and roses, bro. Uh, there is no end in sight. I taped, a, I taped a podcast with a guy today. We agreed, man, the politics on both sides, Ukraine and, and, and Russia, suggests this is going to go on a long time. A lot of dead people destroy the country of Ukraine, possibly. So I. W- so how do these sorts of conflicts end? Right? They don't usually end because the United Nations steps in. They end because one side decisively wins. Right? The Middle East will come to peace when one side decisively wins. Until one side decisively wins, there's not going to be peace. Right? Because when... When winning is still in the balance, when you still feel like you have a chance to win, you are incentivized to fight. When you have no chance to win, you have no incentive to fight. I would ask you, just as a thought experiment, if my deployment of cognitive empathy allowed me to predict with some confidence that inviting Ukraine to join NATO in 2008, this is a very simplified thought mm. experiment. I'm not saying this alone. Blatt says self-checkout hurts us all. It, it deprives us of the opportunity to interact with frequently attractive women who, you know, handle our groceries so deftly. And they often ask, how are you? And sometimes they even smile and uh, sometimes they even smell good. And they can, they can uh, give, you, give you strength and power and joy that you can take from the checkout experience into the rest of your life and even relive at uh, a time and a space that is appropriate. Alone would have done it, okay? I think our policy would have, would have had to have been wiser for 25 years to avoid this maybe. But, but just let's stipulate in the thought experiment, if you hadn't issued that invitation, you wouldn't have this horrible situation. Would you still say, no, you got to go ahead because Ukraine has some right to be invited to NATO or something? I mean, would you not say, you know, you're right, like, there's all these these Ukrainians don't deserve to die and suffer like this. And for that matter, neither do the hapless Russian soldiers. Uh, what, what would be your, your call? So I think there's an issue about, you know, knowing at that point, because like the whole point of it is that you don't know that. So you, you can't. Well, sure. It's a thought experiment. It's yeah. a thought experiment to, meant to clarify your. It's a thought experiment that uh, Chris Kavanaugh would not participate in. Position. Yeah, but I, that, that's part of the issue for me is like, like if you go back in time and say that, you know, you can undo World War II by doing this intervention, which is just like, don't offer some treaty at some place and it leads to World War II not happening. Should you not do that because of the cost of human lives? And like, 
So he's making up the fantasy that if only only Britain hadn't uh, signed a treaty with, with Hitler, bringing peace in our time, therefore we would not have had World War II, which uh, there's no evidence for that. Obviously, the consequentialist calculation is, yeah, because in the grand scheme of thing, what does a, an offer of a treaty make versus, you know... That treaty bought Britain time to rearm, right? It wasn't a ridiculous thing to do a treaty with Hitler at that time. But tens of millions of people that died in World War II. But in the case... Tens of millions of people died in World War II because there was a vital clash of interests. Right? Germany has national security interests in dominating Europe, right? Because Germany has no naturally defensible borders, right? Germany is surrounded by other nation states that are frequently hostile to it. It is Germany also had the capacity to potentially win a quick war to take over Europe, right? So we had a vital clash of interests that led to the war. Of like, so if the outcome was foreseeable and, and predictable, that, that this was likely the outcome. I think for me, the issue there is what's the causal agent that makes that likely? Who is the person that is doing the invasion? And to me, Ukraine is the one that has to that, that has to tiptoe to avoid incurring the wrath of Russia. That is basically saying that if they don't play nice, then they'll get invaded. And, and that's what happens and has always happened in, in great power politics. Uh, Chris Kavanaugh does not like reality. Chris Kavanaugh wants to imagine that there are rights, enforceable rights, that simply don't exist. It's bad epistemics, bro. I, I feel like... Right, this is the basis of his view on international relations. It's based on his feelings, right? which is not a particularly compelling argument. As for people in Ukraine as well, that that isn't the kind of choice that they want to make. Basically, that they are not... Oh, my God, that's not a choice they want to make. Uh, maybe other people don't want to go to work tomorrow, right? But if they're going to pay the bills and support their family... They have to go to walk tomorrow, even though they don't want it. Here's how the world has always worked. The strong take what they want, and the weak endure what they must. That's how the world has always worked. It's not guaranteed to work that way in the future. But if I was a betting man, I'd bet that the strong will continue to take what they want, and the weak will continue to endure what they must. Not allowed to make decisions, or that they get invaded and, and face a brutal war. And Glib Medley says that uh, Dr. Jonathan Paul now works at a supermarket checkout. The junior high school teaching didn't work out. There were classroom management issues. Yeah, having a PhD in journalism or a, a PhD in social sciences or a PhD in the humanities does not tend to work out with you know, strong academic jobs. Right? It's not easy anymore to get hired as a professor in the humanities and the social sciences. And it's not so easy teaching kids, right? Not everyone is cut out to teach children. And so working at the supermarket checkout is an honorable job. And it doesn't have to be the last word in one's career. I mean, I remember I felt like I hit bottom in in 2010 where i was driving an acquaintance around 
he he'd injured his foot so he couldn't really drive himself around so i i drove him like an hour hours drive in the morning an hour and a half in the afternoon coming back and and then i would have to also do errands for him while he was at work so i just wanted to hang out at starbucks and read books but i got paid a hundred dollars a day and i would run errands for him which largely consisted of returning items to target so i'd have to go to target and return like a three dollar bottle of vitamins i mean when i was doing that i felt like wow i have really hit bottom and and i think as far as my underwriting that may well have been the the bottom standing in line at target you know returning someone's uh, vitamins and other you know low low value items for you know like a 17 dollar refund because surely there will be other things in the future that they might want to do economically or politically that will in the future guess what the, it, i don't know if glib medley is telling me the truth but let's just say he is i'm sure there are other things that uh that Dr. Paul wants to do aside from teaching children and working at a checkout. But just because you want something, I assure you there are other things I want to do in the summer of 2010 aside from uh, returning my, my friend's you know, low-value items to Target. But I needed that $100 a day. That $100 a day at that time made a big difference. It kept my head above water. So what what nations want when they're weak doesn't really matter much just like what individuals want when they're weak doesn't really matter much i want a lot of things that i can't have boo hoo hoo annoy russia and would lead to the same outcome so you're basically constraining their future progress along a, a set route which is set by russia and oh my god russia is constraining their progress you know how many people have constrained my progress by firing me, by breaking up with me, by ejecting me, by banning me, by saying bad things about me, all right, by saying no to me, by saying stop to me, by saying don't to me. They obstructed my progress. There were so many women that I wanted to make progress with, and they said no. They obstructed my progress. I could have grown so much but they obstructed my progress. It's a shanda. Like I'm, I'm basically saying that the geopolitics are always something that people have to negotiate and exist within. And they're all, all Geopolitics is something that people just have to negotiate and exist within. Well, I mean, the girls who rejected me didn't feel like they needed to negotiate it. They just said no. And I got the message and I left. If I talk to an attractive woman, and I'm getting nothing back that I, I see very quickly. She's only going through the motion. She's only being polite. She's only humoring me. You know, I bail from that conversation as quickly as possible because it just feels icky, right? She doesn't need to negotiate anything with me. She just needs to show that she has no interest in talking to me, right? So, so too with Russia and other great powers, they don't need to negotiate with weak nations that are on their borders. Always be compromises made just to those not always all these beautiful women that, that i've hit on and, and they said no to me were they compromises that they need to make did they need to negotiate things with me no they just clearly displayed that zero interest in me and if i if i chose to to stick around that just made me feel worse and worse and worse and it just made me more and more loathsome in their eyes 
and it made me more and more loathsome in the eyes of people who saw it or, or heard about it. They didn't need to compromise, right? They didn't need to negotiate. All they had to do was say no, right? When you have great power, you can just say no. If a boss wanted to fire me, he didn't need to compromise with me. He didn't need to negotiate with me. He could just say, this isn't working out and fire me because he had the power and I didn't. Realities. But I, I think that there has to be consideration towards the feelings of people in countries that... There have to be considerations towards the feelings of people. How do you think my feelings are when the women I wanted turned me down? What about my feelings when my, my girlfriend broke up with me? What about my feelings when the, the woman I was dating said, no, stop, don't, quit that? Right? What about my feelings? Right? What about when they obstructed my progress? What about when they refused to negotiate with me? Right? My you know, love life humiliations are of a similar philosophical orientation as uh, the humiliations of weak powers dealing with powerful powers on their doorsteps are less militarily powerful that are less geopolitically powerful and their desire for self-determination and i had desires did i ever tell you about my desires i have had so many desires in my life right i i i i've had desires that people like bow down when i enter a room like i've had desires that uh, people love me that people admire me that people respect me right i have had an infinite number of desires those desires are not incumbent on anyone else right i have no legally enforceable rights that other people must negotiate or accommodate my desires so too weak powers have no substantive rights that uh, great powers accommodate them and their desires. Independence. And I feel that, I genuinely do think it's part... So what is the basis for all his critique here? All he can fall back on is, I feel like. I mean, come on, bro. That's really weak epistemics. It just comes back to, I feel like? Come on, man. Part of being in Ireland, that I, I'm mm -hmm. very keenly... So we're getting his... Uh, psycho, social, biological background to why he feels very keenly about this. But have I ever told you I too have felt keen feelings? I've had very intense feelings. I've been filled with feelings. I've been overflowing with feelings. And they didn't encumber anybody else, right? Everyone else was able to just say F off. Just because I feel something keenly, right, that, that doesn't then force anyone else in any direction. Nobody else has to bow down to my feelings. There's no power in feeling things keenly as far as making demands on others. Be aware when people treat your country like a geopolitical football or that another You're aware that has America them. has done that. I'm not saying this is or isn't relevant. You're, you're aware that America has sponsored coups all over the world and denied the agency of countries all over the world in a much worse way than just saying, we're not going to extend NATO membership to you. We, we, we you know, we invade, yeah. we support, you know, we do it all the time. And I'm, I'm again, I'm, you know, 
that's we not- do, they, so the U.S. does. And Otto Paul says, yesterday I worked at the Delhi Register for three hours from five to eight. It was very slow. I had maybe 10 customers, of which half were store employees on break. I'll say that compared to teaching middle school, my current job is almost completely stress-free. How can you at least control what's playing on the store's radio or stereo? Put put some Ford or KMG in the background. (laughs) And then Otto says, no, I wasn't moving from uh, department to department. I was just doing the checkout stand at the deli. So, hey, Duvid is here. I'll I'll send Duvid an invite. But uh, if they start moving you from department to department, it means they have an eye for you for a promotion. You will have the magic keys soon. Okay, let's uh, let's get uh, Duvid onto the show. And has done. Like, it has spheres of influence. It's it's got a very well-documented history. And, like, you know, you can take Cuba, right, in that sense. They... Didn't tolerate that Cuba had the right to decide to ally itself with Russia, and uh, you know, so I I grant that, but I also think it is important, like when we're discussing NATO and interventions, uh, military interventions, and invasions, and so on. It seems to me there's a qualitative difference in what Russia has done over the past twenty years versus what NATO has done over the past twenty hey, years, David, and how's it NATO. Going? Hey, Brooke Hashem. Happy Tishabov or unhappy Tishabov? Yes, yes. So why don't you tell people a little bit about Tishabov? Well, God forbid it's the main day of mourning for uh, Judaism. 20 full, uh, you know, strict 25 hour fast day, but, uh, you know, full fast day starting from last night through uh, tonight at sundown. It commemorates. A series of bad deeds, most notably the destruction of the Second Temple, um, but uh, according to legend, uh, many bad things over the years all happened on this day, and uh, it goes back even to the Torah with uh, the spies and giving a bad report about uh, the land of Israel. Uh, but uh, you know, collectively from the Jewish calendar, uh, you know, this is the worst day of the year in terms of mourning, thinking about the disasters that have befallen the Jewish people. Uh, If we went to synagogue and said what they call the keynotes, uh, the kinos, or or like the lamentations, poems over hundreds, uh, you know, thousands of years, all commemorating uh, horrible things that have happened to us. So it's a time to reflect, a time to uh, mourn, a time to be... uh, very uh, serious. It's not like, uh, you know, holiday, you could still drive and use electricity. Uh, it's like Yom Kippur and that you're not supposed to use any water, uh, have sexual activity, um, or eat or drink or wear leather shoes. So how is it going through the day without having any sexual activity? Thank God it you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't a problem. Thank God. Thank God. And what, what uh, there's always a big difference between theory and practice. So what, what is your experience of Tisha B'Av? You talked about what you're supposed to be doing and what you're supposed to be feeling and what you're supposed to be thinking about, but what, what's been the reality of Tisha B'Av for you? Um, 
Well, if you're in a firm community, it uh, you'll you'll see people sitting on the floor also. Although till uh, past noon today, you're no longer required to sit on the floor. You're not even supposed to learn Torah. Um, it's very serious. Uh, you know, God forbid, you know, Israel's in a war situation, but uh, it's very serious. Like I would say, from the modern Orthodox to the Haredi basically everybody fasts like even modern orthodox i would say high 90 percent of adult males are fasting it's extremely serious um but at the same time like you know you could work and a lot of people just uh you know go to synagogue uh hear the the book of Acha lamentations uh read you know jeremiah's lamentations and then go throughout uh you know the rest of the day and uh you know so in uh um you know israel or or brooklyn people will gather together and say like psalms or or chant or you'll read the kinos and and it could be prolonged into a few hours right 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 Uh, but you're not answering my question you said absolutely nothing in response to my question my question was i acknowledge that there's a theory and law for how the day should be spent i understand that there are admonitions for what we should be thinking and feeling my question was how is your experience of the day in in reality as opposed to the theory we all you know we we know what we're supposed to be thinking feeling and doing but what about your personal experience do you simply just align 100 percent with the theory of what you're supposed to be thinking or feeling or are you a human being who has an individual experience with this day yeah i mean it's mostly just the fast and the not uh you know not showering or using any water so religiously you kind of have to prepare so if you're in a religious community, like which I'm not, so for me, it's it's basically just the fast day. I have to, uh, you know, and and uh, you know, so I know it's Tisha B'Av because I'm fasting. Uh, but besides for that, there's not much of a connection. You know, thinking about the destruction of uh, Jerusalem, but you know, it's mostly just trying to get through the fast and the uncomfortability of having uh, you know not showered. And God forbid, a lot of times I'll get very tired, and you know, by like you know the afternoon, I'll just. Uh, you lay down and, and fall asleep till after the fast is over. So, you know, there's the disconnect, but the fast is, a, you know, it's a major fast, 24-hour fast. Uh, you know, puts it to you pretty hard. Now, is there a social meaning in the day for you? Is this an opportunity that you relish getting together with, with other Jews? Or is there a personal meaning for you on this day? Or is it just something that you do and and the meaning is not there? No, I mean, the meaning's there. I take my Judaism seriously. I think about Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And, uh, you know, even even in, like, the young Israel near my house, the rabbi will announce, you know, like, do not say hello, do not have small talk. It's not supposed to be a happy day. And you're not supposed to, like, go to synagogue and say hi to your friends or talk about uh, mundane matters. And uh, people sit on the floor also. So, you know, in synagogue, it's, uh, you know, pretty unique people sitting on the floor. So it's not, you know, communal in a happy way. Uh, I didn't go to synagogue last night or today. I read the book of Acha uh, for myself. I don't know if you went to synagogue last night or today or, or your rabbi even publicly announced, uh, you know, like, do not uh, say goodnight to each other, do not greet each other, uh, you know, try to keep a decorum of mourning. Uh, it It varies different different synagogues uh have you know, di- different uh degrees of 
uh, emphasis. So sometimes, yeah, rabbis have made those announcements, but uh, um, I, I didn't. I didn't personally go to synagogue last night or or this morning, but I have in the past, and often in the morning that they'll just be reading keynotes for for hours. I mean, it, the the service can just go on for hours. Yeah, they have a pretty cool thing at the Young Israel near my house that uh, I've participated in the past where uh, very few people show up, only a handful, uh, but uh, where people will prepare an explanation and a history of the Kino. So most synagogues, they just pound through it and read it, uh, and, and uh, it's not very meaningful. Maybe in Israel or Brooklyn, you know, you'll have, it'll be chanted together and slowly, uh, but uh, you know, someone would prepare various keynotes and give a quick explanation in history and if you like jewish history you know god forbid especially like uh like if you're a morning buff god, you know god forbid you have uh, the background of a thousand years like okay this keynote was written when we were expelled from this country and this horrible thing happened and uh, you know the history so i don't know if you've studied the keynote i, I haven't done it for for years but uh, you know when i was in israel I studied pretty hard and uh, before I prepared for Tishavov and I you know, read all the keynotes and I looked at the history and I participated a few years in the Young Israel where uh, you know, experts got up and researched and said over uh, you, you know, the meaning. So, so if, you know, God forbid, like the 109. So, uh, you know, like most of those are mentioned in the keynotes today. And if you know the history, so it's, uh, you know, the 109 expulsions, God forbid, uh, you know, with the uh, added poem of mourning. Okay, let's get uh, Elliot Blatt in here. Elliot Blatt, how's your tissue above going? Elliot Blatt, man, you're letting me down. I cut off David to come oh, to you. Sorry, sorry, muted, muted, sorry. Blessings, blessings. <laughs> blessings all around. How's your tissue above, Elliot? <laughs> Couldn't be better, bro. Just 10 out of 10. Uh, so listen, my phone's going to die pretty quickly. Um, so I just want to get to the self-checkout thing real quick, and then yeah. I'll probably have to drop. Yeah. But there's extenuating circumstances here, you know? Like, um, here, I'm at the store. I've been working really hard, like, cleaning out my apartment and removing a bunch of junk. And so I, I've been making all of these trips up and down the stairs. And like dragging heavy boxes, putting them into the car, driving across town, unloading heavy boxes. You know, it's a lot of a uh, lot of a lot of stress had been under. You know, and so so when I get home, I I fell asleep earlier than my normal hour. Right. Yeah. So I had like this two hour unplanned nap, and then I woke up because I really wasn't you know ready for a full night's sleep. I couldn't get back to sleep, so I was really agitated, and then. Uh, so I was in a sort of, you know, non-traditional state when I went to Safeway to sort of just do a few errands, try to burn off some of that energy and maybe hopefully get back to sleep. But I was in there. Uh, sorry, I'm unloading a car right now full of crap. So sorry about the heavy breathing. So anyway, there's all of these revelers in there, you know, like the green hair, the pink hair. They, they just kind of look dysgenic. They're just like terrible looking people in the safe way. And there's only one checkout aisle open. So I'm reduced to using the, uh, the self-checkout. And uh, it doesn't work. It's like beep, beep. I get three through. And then it just said, then this, you know, these are all identical cans of cat food. There's really no reason why it should just not work right if one works they all should work right 
And Luke, I am a erect column of eroticized rage, ready to explode. And I'm, I'm the only thing that keeps me from exploding is like a thin condom of self-restraint, you know? And that one little thing, that one little extra bit of freeze to just push me over the edge. It just, it broke the condom of self-restraint and I flew into a rage, you know? <laughs> I wish we had video. <laughs> it was like, we are all on a knife edge, Luke. And, you know, it's but for the hand of God that the uh, condom of civilization remains intact. And, and how often does this sort of thing happen where you just fly into an incandescent rage? Never. Never, uh -huh, except uh -huh. occasionally, except if my little routine is disrupted uh -huh. and my sleep isn't perfect. You know, if, if, I, if I'm out of my element, uh, then we're at risk. Then we're all at risk, Luke. And uh, why were you buying cat food? Well, I have two cats, Luke. I have two pets. Why do you have two cats? Um, because I, uh, I was at the park one day and I grew up with having cats. And I figured, well, why the hell not? Why don't I have a couple of cats? And then uh, it, was, uh, it was an impulse adoption. But it wasn't the culmination of like a multi-year plan. It was a totally unplanned event, Luke. And it happened. So I adopted two cats. Little guys. They were, they were adorable, Luke. And are you concerned about getting monkeypox? Uh, well, if anyone's likely to get monkeypox, it would be me. Because, you know, I just figured finished my uh, three-month course of flotation treatments. And like, it really, man. really helping you, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, they are, bro. Uh, Actually, uh, it's allowed me to relax a little bit, you know, and I've been able to get a lot of stuff done that I've been putting off. And I'm including right now, Luke, I'm uh, unloading. I'm at my storage facility and I'm uh, unloading all this junk that I've been trying to get rid of and at least getting it out of the apartment. So it feels like a win. I'm, I'm satisfied with small wins now, Luke. You okay. Can, I can take incremental steps. Uh, Duva, do you, do you have any thoughts? Do you, can you help Elliot out? He's got this rage problem. Yeah, I mean, you got to go back to uh, your Buddhist ways. I, you know, like uh, you need some uh, chanting or more spirituality. Uh, rage, it, anger is essentially just a bad quality. Um, you know, maybe there's occasionally righteous indignation or, or hating the enemies of God, uh, but. Uh, you know, you probably want to get to uh, the bottom of that and uh, uproot it from your uh, personality. You don't want to, you don't want to, you know, stop it as you feel it coming. And how about you, David? Do you have uh, moments of incandescent rage? No, thank God. Like, uh, you know, occasionally um, things happen that don't go my way. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been uh, doing uh, character refinement for decades now. And uh, you, know, my anger, I usually spot quickly and, and try to stop. You might occasionally hear me yelling or uh, on the, online or, or, or things, but uh, you know, generally my anger 
is hard to evoke and dissipate it very quickly if it is evoked, God forbid. Okay, uh, Elliot, so how many months were you doing the flotation thing? Like two months? Uh, three months. Three, three months. months. Yeah, okay, 91 and, sessions. Wow, and, and this cost you, what, $2,000 total? 1500 Okay. 1500 Okay, yeah. and, uh, and upon reflection, is this money and time well spent? Um... <clears throat> Uh, I think it served a purpose. I think, um, I would say yes. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, um, across the board to anybody, but for my particular set of, uh, afflictions, it did seem to, uh, scratch the itch, so to speak. Uh, but, uh, you know, I didn't have any sort of one-on-one -on -one meetings with God or anything like a lot of the YouTube videos kind of imply as possible um but i was able to like uh uh you know break through some of uh, some uh some some procrastination that has been afflicting me and uh and like i've uh, i've solved a lot of problems at work getting my apartment together you know a lot of a lot of things i think it was a catalyst for but weren't necessarily directly attributable to if that makes sense and how is your Captain Saverho desire to rescue people? What, what's going on with that? Well, it's, the reason I'm in the storage cube is because this friend of mine dumped a bunch <laughs> of his shit at my apartment. <laughs> and for the last month, well, the last two weeks, I've been dragging this shit down my apartment. So my, I live on the third floor. So every box has to go down three flights of stairs, you know? So this is a non-trivial exercise. Uh, it would be one thing if it was at ground level, but, uh, and then I have to put it all in the car. They have to drive like a half hour across town. Then I have to sign in. Then the guy has to open up this gate. And then I get to go in the storage facility. Then I empty the car into this truck, this hand truck. And then like, it's a lot of work, Luke. And I have been muttering to myself the entire time, like, never again, <laughs> never again. This, this, this shall not stand. And, and do you get, do you get a rush from rescuing people? Like, is there an addictive high? Uh, no, I used to have that. Not anymore. I, I really put it at, okay. What's the difference between save a hoe and like, doing a mitzvah uh the difference is uh enabling versus uh, genuinely helping so if you are incentivizing people to continue with bad behavior then it's unhealthy but if you're actually making a positive difference in someone's life without destroying your own in the process then then it's healthy interesting well, uh, I think I've learned this lesson finally, and um, I'm in I'm in Camp Tough Love now. Uh, you know, you, you you make you make your bed, you got to sleep in it. Yeah, watch out for the monkeypox. There's a lot of monkeypox in Camp Camp Tough Love. Luke, you know, the, the glib attitude you take towards this critical health issue is really uh, disturbing. You know, I love life. I hate monkeypox. <laughs> you. You want to see us all afflicted with monkeypox. You should really reflect on your attitude.
Yeah, good point. Uh, David, you once lived in a storage locker. Tell me about that experience. Not McGaffrey. I didn't live in a storage locker. I, um, you know, couch surfed or was in between apartments. I, I never lived in a storage locker. I don't even think you could fit in those in Manhattan. It was pretty small. Uh, but uh, I had all my stuff in a storage locker and stayed in various places off and on. And uh, you had to go there often just for, uh, you know, to, to put my clothes, sometimes even daily. Okay. And uh, do you, have you had a history of like trying to rescue people and come to regret it? No, I, I never really had like a savior complex where I thought I could save people. Um, but yeah, I've tried to help people that didn't work out or been taken advantage of, had bad association. Um you know, multiple times, but but, but uh, I, I probably, you know, especially in New York, we've talked about that where where it's very difficult to uh, avoid bad associates. I think me and Elliot on Weekend Review were talking about that, where uh, you know it's near impossible in the big city to avoid uh, bad associations. Sometimes you get uh, very aggressive snorers, uh, people that just ask for favors, people that ask for things, uh, you know, people that. Uh, you know, even steal, but, uh, you know, that you just see again and again, and you can't really do anything about them, get rid of them. And uh, what's your history with, with Elliot Blatt? Um, well, we met on your show. Uh, we probably didn't actually meet on your show, probably the Babs cast. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we, uh, he, he, uh, comes on week in review every once in a while. I guess he's, uh, mutual friends with uh, Jennifer, who we probably also met on the Babs cast. So, you know, that's about it. We've talked maybe even to tens of hours over a few years. And have you but, had any passionate disagreements? Um, I mean, maybe at the beginning about, uh, you know, God forbid, like laughing at Holocaust jokes or something like that, but, but uh, not really that passionate. Um, you may be more, not really. Like uh, some, uh, you know, on other streams that he's got a different. Uh, you know, I guess I'm more serious or just the facts. Not, uh, not as much for antidotes, uh, but not really. You know, disagreement, just uh, different styles. Do you find your brain slowing down when you talk to Elliot? I mean, you could put it that way, but. Uh, you know, it's just a different style. Right? I'm not really that interested in kind of like day-to-day -day anecdotes of, uh, yeah, I'm more a person of ideas and, and like uh, anecdotes don't particularly interest me. I don't know if it, maybe it's accurate to say it kind of slows my mind down, but it makes me lose focus from ideas because I'm more a person of ideas. And uh, Elliot, what's, what's your history with, with David? Uh, do you recall any passionate disagreements? If Elliot's still there, if he can unmute, so maybe we've. Uh, we've lost. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I, I heard I, I was signing out of the uh, storage sorry. facility. Uh, my back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're back out of okay. the psychiatric institution. You signed out. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. David and I tangled once. I don't remember what it's about. It's not a big deal. Uh, I'm content to uh, leave it to historians to sort out. <laughs> <laughs> And, and what's the next thing, Elliot, that you're going to try? You've done the, you've done the, 
the soaking in the in the tub you know you've done the cold water swimming like what's what's next on your agenda oh, so uh it's a good question luke uh i've decided on to open up a little side hustle business uh, okay so i got my main job yep and it's pretty well situated now so i've been uh hold on let me plug in the uh yep let me plug in the phone i might lose you that's okay. Um, on Fox News Sunday. I'm now driving. So hold on. And a major win for abortion rights in deep right, red Kansas. Yep, I can hear you. Go ahead. Uh, okay. So, um, yeah, I'm opening up a little side hustle, kind of like Duvid. Uh, just like, oh, here's what's going on. So I'll give you the whole context. I know it's an anecdote, and, and you know, Duvid doesn't like anecdotes, but I live in a world of anecdotes, Luke. <laughs> That's. That's who I am. I'm a story-based uh, anecdotal kind of guy. You're anecdotal, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not up for the big ideas, though. I just they bore me. they bore me. Luke. So uh, yeah, so in the process of cleaning out my apartment, I found a bunch of books that I don't need. You know, so I figured I would just take them down to the uh, bookstore and uh, you know sell them to the bookstores, maybe get a lunch or two out of it. So I'm I'm expecting to get like thirty bucks. Right. Yeah. And I ended up getting 110 bucks. Wow. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, that's a few lunches, you know. So, so it dawned on me that people uh, still buy books, um, which was actually a revelation to me because you know I thought everything was, you know, eBooks and online and you know I thought everybody's like me. This is the narcissistic uh, assumption that I make is that yeah. everyone's basically exactly like me, and so what they're into, I'm into, and. Uh, were the university press like textbooks i mean i sell books like uh books most books aren't that valuable but uh, you know some of them are mostly universally textbooks unless you have like uh first editions or, or rare copies but uh you know if you have like oxford press uh cambridge press uh, university text old textbooks even those a lot of times are worthless but those could retain value well, I, I don't. Th wouldn't think. I don't think there were any textbooks among them. They were in generally pretty good quality, um, uh, but they were definitely. They were a lot of trade paper too. If it's a, the whole key to the book industry is is if the book is in reasonably good condition, there's a market for it for somebody. So, um, a lot of books. It was very strange. A lot of books I thought they would buy, they didn't buy. A lot of books that that they, I didn't think would sell, they did buy. So it was. Uh, just it just showed me uh the extent of my ignorance so but i was humble before it i did some 12 steps and you know i just left it to god and i was rewarded yeah i mean most have trade-in value that they're not even uh i mean it's a rare big bookstore that buys books and gives you cash most of them will give you uh, store credit yeah and i was surprised they handed me cash it was really interesting so i figured well, maybe it's because I'm in a, you know, a, a, a city and, you know, there's still kind of a thriving bookstore. It's not thriving, but it's not completely dead, the, the used bookstore. I used to work in a used bookstore, so I, you know, I kind of know the game a little bit. Um, but then I figured, well, you know, people, you know, <laughs> what's this, people will just give away books, big boxes of books. And you can just walk across town and then turn them into a couple hundred dollar bills. So anyway, that's what I'm doing. I'm sort of having this sort of sideline little bookstore uh, dealing thing going on now. I'm gonna see. I'm gonna see if I can uh, make something out of it. It's just. It's sort of an. I'm an experiment for the time being. Now, online. 
You what about like, sell, yeah, selling them online? Sell on the street. I mean, I knew in New York people used to set up uh, tables and sell books on the street. Maybe you could do that uh, where you are, or you just meet online like Duvid. Well, the thing is, I, I actually like the fact that it's about driving around and being out and about rather than sitting at home in front of a computer. I, I'm really uh, starting to feel cooped up, and I just sort of like the fact that there is sort of a uh, face-to-face human engagement aspect to this. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've looked at uh, – there's ways of selling directly to Amazon, but that involves shipping to Amazon and – I don't know if the economics really work out because it's kind of expensive to ship things now. The cost of shipping has gone up. Uh, and so, but yeah, I mean, I'm exploring the, I'm sort of in the uh, exploration research phase, but yeah, shipping on online is definitely a thing I'm going to do, but I'm not going to be sitting there uh, selling books one at a time and putting them to boxes and hoping that, and hoping that they get there and dealing, you know, I'm not going to get into that granular level of dealing right I, I like sort of the wholesale thing here's a big box of books you give me the cash and i don't waste a lot of time so i'm thinking about it that way i'm it's a lifestyle business as they say and uh david you talked about uh, people shouldn't get angry but we're supposed to imitate god and and all through the the torah and the tanakh god is constantly getting very very angry so why shouldn't we emulate god's rage well, I mentioned there's your know, anger. I mean, I mean, Perkyovis has said straight, you know, cast kina vataiva mavirin adamin oilam, anger, lust, and and uh, honor remove a person from the world. Generally, in the Musar Sporum, the books, uh, character refinement, uh, anger is looked at as uniquely bad that uh, generally has no use. There is such a, you know, emulating God, being angry at God's enemy. Uh, but the case where that would be necessary is quite rare. And uh, you know, to, to allow yourself to be an angry person. And even if God gets angry in the Bible, you know, like it, it doesn't uh, mean that we should uh, emulate the trait of anger. Wait, why? I mean, God is constantly getting angry in the Bible. So why should we be different? Well, because we're not God, and God doesn't command us to copy God in God's anger. There's uh, commandments, and one of them isn't to get angry. I mean, God gets so angry, he destroys the entire earth. I mean, he kills everybody on it. I mean, that's I mean, that's a really intense level of anger. Yeah, I don't know if you're just joking or saying, no, what, I'm, there's, I'm no, dead there's no commandment to copy God. God gives us commandments, and just because God acts in a certain way, in certain circumstances, there's no commandment to copy God. There's no commandment to copy God. So, really. Can you think of one? You know, so like copy God. God gets angry, therefore we should get angry. I'm not sure where you're pulling that from. Well, we're made in the image of God. Well, I said that we have free will, that we have, uh, but uh, the, even there, it doesn't say, you know, therefore. We should try to act like God. We're, we're, we're humans. We serve God. We don't act like God. We're servants. Okay, we're supposed to be followers of God, but we're not supposed to imitate God. Yeah, we can learn lessons from God, but uh, if there's no commandment to get angry, you can say like, oh, I'm going to get angry because God occasionally gets angry. 
um, I don't think that uh, you know, like uh, that's not uh, that's not Judaism's. Hmm. Okay. I mean, uh, Do you have some sort of feeling that was that that you're supposed to? Uh, I mean, there's certain statements, but that you're supposed to just try to copy God. It's like no, we got rules. We follow the rules. Well, we're definitely meant to imitate God, but but uh, not obviously try to impersonate him and not try to to uh, copy him, but we... Where do you, you know, get this from? Let's imitate God from. Well, the idea that we're made in God's image. But what, what does that have to do with trying to imitate God? Well, if we're made in God's image, then we reflect God. So how would we how would we not be influenced by the person that we're made in his image by? I mean, this is my God. I, I will glorify him. I will I will glorify God. Just as God is gracious and merciful, you know, so too I will be gracious and merciful. You know, just as God is slow to anger, so too I will be slow to anger. Uh, we're told you shall be holy as God is holy. Right? There are all these commandments and teachings that say that we should imitate God. So I I, I don't see where you're coming from. Yeah, I'm not sure there's a, you're saying that we should have certain character. I don't think there's any straight commandment that we should uh, imitate God. And if it's specific, like you mentioned, slow to anger and, uh, you know, the attributes, because the Torah mentions attributes and God's essential attributes, like 13 attributes, is merciful and slow to anger. And anger is not one of God's essential attributes. And uh, you're saying, no, no, I mean, God gives us specific laws and commandments to follow. There's no set commandment to, you know, just try to imitate God. That, uh, you know, that doesn't seem uh, you Judaic in practice. We don't imitate God. We follow the rules that God sets before us. Well, we have in Devarim, we're supposed to imitate God in loving the stranger. We're supposed to imitate God in resting on the Sabbath. There are all sorts of ethical actions where we're supposed to imitate God. So... Devarim uh, chapter 13, after God you shall walk. How can man walk after God? This is from the Talmudic tractate of Sota 14a. Is God not a consuming fire? What is it meant that man ought to walk after God? Well, just as God clothes the naked, so you shall clothe the naked. Just as God visits the sick, so you shall visit the sick. Just as God comforts the mourner, so you shall comfort the mourner. Just as God buries the dead, so you too shall bury the dead. So imitatio Imitatio die is a is a Christian doctrine, but it comes from very strong Judaic roots. Uh, Elliot, do you want to weigh in on imitating God? Uh, no, no. <laughs> uh, um, though there is a story I, I, I'm thinking about in a, in the in the Hindu tradition where uh, this question comes up, and you, you it, they would use the word guru. They would have a guru and the guru would do all kinds of things that were forbidden by the religion. Right. And so including, uh, having sex. And, uh, so he, this guy was accompanying the guru and the guru would, would have sex with this young woman, but he forbade the, uh, the, the disciple from doing that. But, and then the guru would like swallow hot coals. So he, he said, if you want to follow me, you have to do, if you want to imitate me, you have to, you have to do what you have to, good and the bad so one of the good bad things that he did was was uh i'm really botching the story because i'm driving but uh the guru could swallow hot coals and the disciple was not ready to swallow hot coals so there's a there's things that the divine can do that a human 
shouldn't do or even attempt. And ha have you had <laughs> gurus? Just, Go ahead, Elliot. And uh, well, the, the, as David says, you're basically meant to follow the rules, and that's about it. And have you had a guru, Elliot? A personal guru? No, 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 no. Uh, have you had uh, people that you wanted to emulate? Have you oh, had yes, mentors? Absolutely. absolutely. Have you had people who've groomed you? Uh, I've not been groomed. Uh, uh, I've had mentors, not in that sort of formal capacity, like I think you're you're intending the question, but I've had what I would consider be mentors. Yeah. And uh, how about you, David? Have you had mentors? Have you had people that you wanted to imitate and follow? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, from secular like training that not like a guru but you know like uh, an individual trainer or coach for something like you know chess math teacher instructors uh and, and then you know when i went to israel i, I had rabbis i didn't uh you know rabbis and and uh and then within hinduism i've had uh gurus none that i've ever given unequivocal fellowship uh, to which uh, within the larger movement uh, you might be recommended that I always had multiple rabbis that I studied under. I never had one rabbi that I asked all my questions to and did what they said, nor did I really ever have a situation where I would have had one person I would have asked advice for and then just did what they said. I always, you know, got advice from multiple people, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, since COVID nineteen, even even uh, here in Metro Detroit, you know, yeah, I consult uh, rabbis all the time. Elliot, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I did. I had a point. I think uh, I think a mentor or guru type figure is somebody that you wouldn't want to disappoint. It's not somebody that simply teaches you things, but there's a moral dimension to it. And, you know, similar to a parent that you would sort of uh, conduct yourself at a standard much higher because you wouldn't want your mentor to know that you fall below that standard. So there's a certain uh, that's what I take to mean when you talk about a mentor or a guru. there's a moral character dimension. And uh, Elliot, I'd have to think that you would be kind of scared of having that close of a relationship with a guru because it would make demands on you it would impinge on your personal freedom absolutely it absolutely would <laughs> well, i could add in what we were talking about in the ronnie goldman book like the hero that you know like the rabbi or the guru they're much higher ranking and if you feel like okay like you know luke you're doing for the jews you're you're producing results for team judaism or you know a group within judaism and you feel like you're kind of reporting back to somebody who's much higher ranked and doing much more than we're doing. And so you you like whatever I'm doing, I feel like I'm doing uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm winning, I'm accomplishing for the Jews. And then that's under a figurehead that is uh, you know, much more advanced in accomplishing much more is much more respected in the larger uh, Jewish circles. And if someone asks me, especially in Judaism, you know, like I'm under the auspices, like, what are you doing? And say, well, like, no, I, I'm I'm working together under this uh, respected figure, and that would be, um, you know, in secular terms, 
but but you know especially within Judaism or Hinduism where you know if you're doing something for the team and then you uh, pass the authority on to a, a more recognized greater figure that you're you know, you're doing it under his umbrella. Uh, Elliot, did you want to add something? Uh, no, but I, I, I well. Not yet. I mean, this is this is a safe space, Elliot. I know, but I'm parking, Luke. I, I I can like I'm a total. All right, all right. I'm out of the car again. I'm at the flea market, Luke. Aren't you excited? Maybe Luke, with... you felt that way about Dennis Prager. I don't know if you felt that way like about a rabbi, where you were doing something under the auspices or umbrella of a larger rabbi, but maybe you felt that way about like you know Dennis Prager that uh, you're, you're kind of you're just doing a lower level of what he's doing. And if someone asks you, you're like, I'm emulating D- Dennis Prager and, uh, you know, something like that. And like, you're, you're winning for the larger group and team in, in the way that this person, uh, you know, broad shoulders, you could fall under. Yeah, there was, there was probably some of that, but I always liked my own freedom too much. So I could never, never really be a, a follower of anyone. So the, I have met many charismatic rabbis who, uh, part of me wanted to follow or I'd start following them, but then I'd quickly realize that there'd be tremendous demands on me that, that come with associating with, with a particular rabbi. And so those restrictions on my freedom would destroy my my desire to, to become a, a follower. So You never produce wins for the community in a way that the rabbi, if you mention that, you know, the rabbi would be, oh yeah, Luke, you know, like uh, he's producing these results and it's good for, you know, us in the congregation. That, yeah, I mean, uh, that's happened. Yeah. So I've been part of a Torah class, a daily Torah class, a, a Dafyomi class, and, and the rabbi would mention the participants, including myself, or there'd be the various volunteer capacities that I've engaged in where the, the rabbi would, would mention me from the Bema. Elliot, you were going to say something. Well, yeah, there's something very anti, like a real like tradition. It's very anti-democratic, right? There's a real clear notion about hierarchy. Yeah. yeah. And you know, certain people are higher than others, right? And if you want to truly be authentic, you have to up your game. You have to, you have to, um, you know, you have to embody like a, a, a much more rigorous uh, code of conduct. And very few people are capable of doing that. So it's a long process. And what's happened in what happens in the West, especially the in democratic institutions they like to tear down the notion of this of, of a of a guru of someone being bigger you know better than you right everyone's equal bro that's that's a very modern notion and it's actually really destructive yeah i don't know if uh you know like i mentioned like a lot of rabbis are very practical and if you produce results you know they're going to uh be happy for you to produce the results under their auspices if it benefits them and their movement and then their congregation and especially while you're winning and producing results they're much more likely to make exceptions and not demand all the rules so if you're you know not producing results there's going to be much higher demands that you uh, you know fall in line and, and uh, you have all the commands and rules but if you're producing results and winning for the community uh, you know the, the rabbis might even fight over you so that uh, you know that you would be producing the results for them and uh, they would uh, make exceptions for uh, your your uh, your misgivings and your your, your failings. You know, and, you know, you experience that, Luke. Uh, sure, 
um, rabbis tend to be pragmatic. I mean, generally speaking, rabbis want every person they can to be a member of their synagogue, to attend their Torah class, to participate in volunteer activities, to give money, to give time. I mean, rabbis tend to be quite pragmatic. What about, uh, Elliot, did you want to jump in there? Nope. Well, can I hit you on that a little bit like that winning for the community? You never felt like you were winning for the Jews or, you know, like bringing in victories and advancing the cause of the Jewish people in a way that the rabbi would have backed you. Like, yeah, Luke's winning for the Jews. He's winning for our community. Yeah, I mentioned that. So when I'm, say, a regular participant in Daf Yomi, that gets publicly acknowledged. When I'm a regular participant in uh, Torah learning uh, with the rabbi, that often gets publicly acknowledged. When I'm volunteering in various capacities for the synagogue, that gets publicly acknowledged. When I join a synagogue, that gets publicly acknowledged. When I'm well, I mean, outside of the synagogue, not even saying that, okay, if you're helping the synagogue, they acknowledge it, but it's saying what you're doing outside of the synagogue, you're winning for the community in the larger community and, uh, you know, as opposed to, uh, you know, actively doing something to benefit uh, within the community that, you know, you're bringing in wins for the Jewish people. I don't recall a lot of uh, examples of that. I mean, I've had various rabbis say they, they appreciate my blog or they appreciate a video that I've made or that they think it's a, it's a, a good approach and it's good for the Jews to, you know, tackle a particularly difficult subject that, that other people, you know, would be afraid to tackle. So I, I've Can had you bring that. Jews or secular Jews to synagogue? I, mean, I feel that most in terms of, you know, like Kirov or something like results, like you're know, saying, like I read your books, you spoke to a lot of powerful people. And then, you know, if you could bring them to a synagogue or a Jewish event, you know, saying you're expanding the circles, you, you, uh, you know, you get out there and you made contact to a person that was outside of the community. And now, uh, you know, they have a warmer relationship to the community and we could credit directly Luke Ford for that. Or, yeah, or, or, there's or, been some of that, but there's also been uh, at times a look of apprehension when, when say, a friend uh, visits the synagogue and uh, meets the rabbi and the rabbi says, you know, what brings you here? And it's like, oh, my friend Luke Ford told me about it. <laughs> I mean, you can lose for the community too, God forbid, but it's like you've, you've brought in wins for the community. You've done that before. Yeah. But uh, also, it's not uh, it's not like my my name is an unalloyed uh, joy for for every rabbi in town. But David, what about the impingement on your freedom? So when you become a follower to a particular rabbi, there are then demands on you that if you're going to maintain that close relationship, you'll have to live up to. So how have you dealt with that? Well, I mean, for long periods of time, I did it. I did, uh, you know, like I, I showed up to Minyan every day. I prayed. I kept all the commandments and, uh, you know, fullest to uh, the best of my ability. Um, you know, I consulted the rabbis, uh, but I was also kind of an outsider. So there was always, uh, you know, especially when I was among, you know, Chassidim and Haredim, it was kind of known that I'm an outsider. So it was more accepted that I would uh, be likely to have uh, uh, shortcomings. And then in New York, maybe I got involved in stuff where, because I was an outsider, like I said, I was doing things within the outside community where you, I was doing things for the rabbis that were beneficial for the community. And therefore, like it was known that uh, um, it was you know, okay if my standards was a little bit more lax and, uh, you know, would have been directly, maybe, you know, like contingent 
upon like once you stop producing wins for the community uh you know that uh, lack standard then you're just a bum you know so it's contingent upon uh upon the wins and uh you know i did things like you know building permits or uh, uh community liaison where, where there'd be a tangible results i drove the arab truck uh you, you where, where we literally expanded the territory of the community you know like literally with the arab where we were there with the truck uh you know, in, a in the most visible way possible, expanding the territory of the community. And in that sense, like, yeah, it's contingent upon uh, winning. And as soon as the, you know, the wins aren't there, then you're just a bum. And uh, Elliot, do you often feel like an outsider? Um, a little bit, I would say. Uh, often, I don't feel like I'm thoroughly estranged, but I, uh, I, okay, well, yesterday, like, so here's an example. Uh, so sort of the birthday party for work, you know, the CEO and her daughter's birthday. And so there was this big party down there and, uh, I was dreading it the whole day because I hate those types of things. Like, uh, these sort of formal, um, social occasions you know uh, where you sort of meet and greet and you uh exchange small talk these types of things these scenarios tend to uh, uh make me very uncomfortable so in, in that sense of the word yeah in those situations i definitely feel like an outsider so is that what you're getting at or something well else? when you're at charlottesville did you feel like an outsider well you know we had a permit luke we applied we had a permit and then the the police said that you couldn't couldn't speak yeah and then we were all funneled into this park yeah and and the antifa you know, were beating you yeah so i don't know i don't know if i like the question luke <laughs> uh what about in america do you feel like an outsider to america um no i i i've been thinking about that i really like I really like America and I have no desire to travel and I have no desire to live outside of the country. And, uh, for all its faults, I, I, I kind of like the insanity that America sort of brings to the table. You know, I went to France, uh, 2008 on a ski trip, you know, and I was in France for whatever, a week. And the people were just kind of mean and dour. And, uh, there was, uh, I just didn't like like the people in France, right? There, there just seemed to be this uh, bitchiness that sort of accompanied uh, their entire culture and their way of interacting. And like, as soon as I got off the plane in America, like, I felt relaxed. I felt like, oh yes, this is the cast that I know, and everybody's kind of warm and giggly, and it's just, you know, I don't know. It was at that moment that I really did feel like an American. So, so you love you love the big gay disco that America's become. <laughs> love, love is love, Luke. Love is love. Uh, David, do you feel like an outsider in, in America? Not really. I mean, like I feel pretty American, and even uh, you know, criticizing the government or, or being critical of America feels relatively American, like in terms of personal freedom, I know the laws, I know, like, I, I know, 
generally how mo most civic uh, processes work. Um, I know a lot of my elected officials or, or local police officers, and you know, so being in line with uh, the legal system or the civics of America versus uh, you know being popular or having friends might be uh, might be different things. So like the general culture of America, I feel alienated from. Uh, but the governmental system of checks and balances and uh, in the law, I feel pretty comfortable with. But, I mean, you look different than most Americans. So you 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 don't then then feel like an outsider because you're, you're dressed differently. You have a, a beard and and uh, you're wearing a yarmulke. Well, I feel that in a certain sense, but I don't connect that to Americanism. I connect that to like groups or cliques or social culture because I, I think I have a pretty good understanding for the larger rules that society function by. So I feel like in line uh, you with those. So whether you're like, you don't have to be liked by your peers to be uh, in line with the law in America in a lot of sense that, uh, you know, like the American dream doesn't necessarily include popularity. It you know, includes uh, you know, an individualism where I fulfill some sort of function, uh, you make my money, have a job, and then I could, you know, have, have a, you know, a house and build up a family. And uh, so I, I don't connect that to like whether people like me or, or whether I look uh, weird to people, to Americanism. You know, generally I think the Americanism is two things. It's their right to look at me that way. And it's my right to, to be that way that they can't really discredit. They could not like me. They could tease me. They could uh, not want to be my friend, uh, but uh, you know the, they uh, still have to do business with me, and uh, you know there's a legal system that uh, protects my right, and there's individual freedoms that uh, you know we're both going to go home to our private property at night. So uh, that that's my understanding of America. So I don't consider the unpopularity or people thinking I'm weird, uh, look you know in an un-American way that that's central what it means to be American. And uh, how often do you leave uh, Detroit area and leave Michigan, dude? Almost never. You know, like, God forbid, only a few times in, like, the last 10 years related to, uh, you know, God forbid, the death of my grandparents. Right. And, uh, Elliot, what does driving mean to you as an American? You'll need to unmute. I, I mentioned, like, I, I went down last weekend to uh, Missouri for a family event, and I felt really comfortable um, dressed as an Orthodox Jew, basically everywhere. Like I could see, like people wouldn't want me moving into the neighborhood, but people were pretty nice. No one said anything. You know, the gas station or the hotel. Like it's America. Um, you know, I could dress however weird I want. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, like I pull up my wallet and make a financial transaction. And so, you know, there's a feel like, oh, who is this guy? Or even maybe we don't want him around. But there's also like, okay, like we'll do business with him. And then he's going to go and be on his way. It's not a problem. And uh, I, I felt that way, you know, really probably everywhere in America. I, I don't think there's anywhere in America I wouldn't feel like that. And uh, what about driving? How important is driving to your American identity? Yeah, I'm a car person. Like even New York, most of the time I had a car. I worked as a driver, you know, from Metro Detroit, the home of the automobile. So uh, you're definitely a car person. Um, you know, my, my parents' neighborhood doesn't even have sidewalks. Like it's meant for cars, not people. And, uh, you know, my neighborhood here, 
uh, you know, as I said, like our neighborhood mottos, we snitch. If you see someone on the streets that you don't recognize, uh, you know, call the cops just to be safe. And uh, in, in the extent it's meant for cars, not people. And if you live in the neighborhood, uh, you maybe, you know, you'd be on the sidewalk or something or, or kids playing. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure if LA is like that. I mean, it's designed for cars and not people. Uh, you, you know, where you're going, get where you're going, and you get into your car and you get where you're going. Then you, you know, then you go. And if you're hanging out on the street already, like at least in a residential neighborhood, it's suspicious. Like if you don't live there, what are you doing there? And you're in the big city. I mean, maybe you're you know, Hollywood. I guess you're probably in a residential area, also where if people were walking right outside your house, you'd probably like, who are you? What are you doing here? But, uh, you know, on the main streets, that might be a little bit uh, different. Mm -hmm. And what do you listen to in the radio? Do you listen to the radio? What do you do? I listen almost exclusively teaching company. And I, I've, I've listened to almost all of their courses. At this point, I probably listened to over a thousand courses. I listen to them in two speed. So I'm listening right now to uh, their new course on John F. Kennedy 12-part lecture series. I just listened to one, one on practical geology. And uh, you. Know, in the beginning, I listened to ones that were more interesting because I've listened to almost all of them. Uh, yeah, I, I listened to basically all, the, all of them, the new ones as they come out, no matter what the subject. And if uh, I've listened to all of them before the new ones come back, I'll go back and listen to some older ones. Like I just did one like martial arts or... French. I, I didn't really study the French, but I listened to the course on French. I have one, you know, loaded up for like Greek. I'm going to take a course on, on, on uh, you know, like learning Greek. I probably won't, you know, actively try to learn it, but I'll listen to the course anyways. Yeah, the uh, chat says you can't understand America without driving at night on an interstate highway, listening to the radio, classic rock or talk radio, 70, 70 miles per hour plus in the vastness of America and the private, intimate nature of a car on the open road. So I'm going to wrap up the show for today. David, any final words? Yeah, have an easy fast. I'm, I'm not sure. Did, did, was that book interesting enough? Did you want to uh, try to pound through it? or, uh, or yeah, well, we definitely, yeah, I want to do more on uh, Ronnie Goodman's book on uh, conservative oppression. Okay, great. So have an easy fast, and uh, you'll be in touch. Okay, take care, David. Bye-bye.